Hi, this is Tokyo Yes Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Reed Pletcher. Reed is one of the most talented, fun, adventuresome guys you will ever meet or hear of. Despite adversity, Reed squeezes out as much juice of life as possible, which I love. Only 32 years old, Reed already has an incredible life story. A few highlights include racing Nordic Ski World Cups, racing road bikes as a U23 professional, winning NCAA Nordic Ski Championships, falling when rock climbing, and incurring a severe long-term brain injury, including losing much of his ability to speak English, and then learning how to speak English and understand English again, winning super tour races, returning to World Cup racing, river rafting guiding, Paralympic athlete guiding, rollerblading through Europe, climbing Peru's monster peaks, making the national finals on American Ninja Warrior, speed skating on the US national development team, and becoming a professional custom adventure van builder. If you wanna be entertained, if you wanna be inspired, or you want your heart touched, check out this interview with Reed and get to know him better. Reed, thank you very much for being with me today. Um, this is, I've, I've, I really look forward to this conversation with you and catching up with you on a personal level. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for reaching out. So can you please tell me where you grew up and when you started skiing? I uh, grew up in Sun Valley, Idaho, and uh, with Rick Apala, and everyone's familiar with both of those. Uh, I had an older brother, Luke Pletcher, that's uh, two years older than me, and I pretty much followed him through the lifestyle. Like he started skiing, so I skied, and running, so I'd run, and biking, and I just pretty much grew up following him. I started Nordic skiing officially, I guess, besides the family walk arounds in the field, probably 10 years old when I do the little junior races and, uh, and then was on the Sun Valley ski team for there through high school year off and, you know, just pretty much long history with the team. But uh, yeah, it was, I think the best opportunity for a Nordic skier in the U S to have that opportunity, you know, one of the big, uh, you know, like Burke, Sun Valley, those big development teams in the country where I had a giant group of friends and we were just super close knit and one adventure after another following Rick's advice. And uh, yeah, uh, skied up through there through high school and then, and then on from there. But I think it was just a perfect opportunity and supportive family to grow up and start Nordic skiing and make that my one of my life goals to ski well. As you alluded to, you you grew up uh, near Sun Valley and you were in the Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation program and Rick Capallo was your longtime coach. You know Rick as well as anyone. Can you please share some thoughts on him as a coach and a mentor? Yeah, uh, I mean, he is one in a million. You know, there's I think there's those people out there that they have, they were meant to be, you know, a, battery scientist or a teacher or a ski coach and you know they you could just tell that everything that where their life has taken them to that point is has put them exactly where they were supposed to be and I think Rick just comes off that way where you can just tell that there's the passion and he's sincere and he just cares so much about every single athlete that he coaches that probably tens of thousands at this point and uh it's, I mean, he was a father figure to me 
because my dad being a super busy doctor and being on call and you know when I started doing like two a days with Rick and it, I would spend more time with Rick easily than I would with my dad because you know dad's off working hard and keeping the family together and and I'm there with Rick like eventually like four to six hours a day and just growing up with him as a mentor I think changed who I am today because uh like I've never fished in my life I mean there are a couple fly rods around here and there but I'm obsessed with fishing because of Rick's stories I just like I'm passionate about the idea of fishing because of the stories where Rick would just just wonder we go on a hike or run in the Canadian Rockies and Rick would just be talking about anything <laughs> it's like his ex-girlfriends or his college or whatever but like fishing and after four or five years of hearing that and like just seeing like everything that he said he meant in the most sincere way and like it's like I think you should take a day off as simple as that or like you know you, you need to like think about life this way not you know it, he just had an approach where he made training and skiing an adventure and fun and like sure we'd be doing intervals like everyone and I'm sure everyone's had similar experiences but like you got to love what you do and it helps when your coach loves what he does and loves trying to bring kids up into being hardworking, mature adults that have that can experience the hardships and the highs and lows of life and and he, he he's worked me through that so there's like doing the summer trips up in Banff like we'd be cliff jumping and uh, I think it was Lake McDonald on the going to the sun road and there's like the 40 foot jump the 50 foot like cliff and and we're all just jumping off having a fun day between uh you know our hikes and rick sees the 80 foot jump and he's like oh this is fantastic like why not he gets up there does an 80 foot jump he's kind of like going a little off kilter and massive massive jump and I think he hit the water slight angle kind of tapped his head he might have gotten a minor concussion from that but just like he's a child in an adult's body and he just loves the adventure we're like building an outdoor sauna at one of our camps in the same canadian rocky trip we're like got some visqueen tarps wrapped around some trees started a big fire put the rocks in the fire and move the rocks with some cooking mitts into the visqueen tent and then steamed it and we're sitting out a couple uh, 15 20 miles north of Banff in a sauna in a campground in the forest and just everything about him just like the Rambo runs were kind of what we were talking about earlier about uh going off the trail and like we're gonna go in a straight line for an hour and you're like muddy and digging through bushes and like doing push-ups and stuff in the middle of it and uh save the baby king i think you guys have already talked about that we're like it's just creating these like putting together these puzzle pieces of how to have fun train hard and um i think one of the most memorable experiences with rick was hiking across idaho where he and abby holt uh pulled up a map of idaho and like we're gonna start here we're gonna go a couple hundred miles to here you know it's like basically the idaho montana border i think <clears throat> and went to winco packed up a bunch of like granola and stuff and got 
I don't know, 20 or 30 of us and parked the vans and then just started hiking. And a, probably halfway through that trip, Rick was leading. We're all just, you know, got our backpacks, bike back, backpacking along and, and a rattlesnake was on the trail and he either almost stepped on it or saw it and made a very sudden move to try and avoid the rattlesnake and i think he like jolted to the side and then so like rolled his ankle in a bad way that wasn't just like ow kind of walk it off like it was bad <laughs> and like we still had i don't know a hundred miles to hike and we ended up using the sat phone to call max Durchie's dad and i was like okay we have these medications what can we mix? Like what's safe to do to just like numb up Rick and try to get him out of here. Cause like, I think the nearest like landing strip was like 20, 30 miles away. And it just being part of that, like that, that's an adventure. That's a real world adventure. And we took some weight off Rick's backpack and, and had a successful trip and just growing up with that kind of father figure where anything is possible and we try everything because why not and uh it's just it was an amazing experience so he's i think the perfect leader or ski coach to have around to fall in love with the sport and experiencing life to the fullest because he just represents that he's just the best of best of coaches <clears throat> not that i'm biased or anything but for sure i have a question that comes comes into contrast a little bit and that is everyone if i ask anybody about rick apollo it's the fun mass all the fun stories and and lightheartedness and and keeping the pursuit of excellence fun and adventuresome but if i observe the sun valley team in head-to-head -head racing especially they're the most savvy most experienced they ski of technically best generally speaking what I'm saying is, it seems to me there's a lot of coaching going on, technical coaching. And you wouldn't <laughs> know it listening to people talk about Rick, but I think maybe that's because he's so incredibly outstanding when it comes to keeping things fun and people are learning and developing without realizing it. But yeah. some Valley athletes are all extremely savvy, experienced, and they ski very well. I, yeah, I think that's, it's, it's easy to remember the Rick running around and like, a onesie outfit like doing some goofy like throwing snowballs or bouncing on a bet you know like anyone's gonna remember that but um yeah it there were times where i'd come in as i think it was in middle school or freshman sophomore in high school and like rick i think i'm overtraining and like i'm, I'm like a 12 year old like 12 year olds don't think about overtraining they just run themselves to the ground 24 7 and i just like, sit down and it's like i think i'm overtraining and then we would have like a two hour conversation about like, why do you think that? What have you been doing? What can we do about that? His first reaction was like, well, you're not overtrained. You might be overreaching, but you're fine. And, and he would just, you know, lock in to the issues. If it was technique, if it was overtraining and like, and just really put that time in where you know, he was kind of given those inspirational speeches where like everyone in the room is watching a technique video and he says some like did you see so and so in like the world cup in 1986 and like 
this happen because their technique and just everyone is just locked on him. And I think it's just that sincerity that just is flowing out of him that just like that people realize that, yeah, sure, we can have fun. But when he is talking the way Rick talks, you listen. And he, I mean, he has the history of results and the experience and which is being part of that atmosphere. Like, I mean, he, he's a hard ass. Like I was a shitty little kid that would like do crazy ideas that would end up like throwing a rock through a window on a ski trip or so. Like there was one time I got a, on that summer Canada uh, training trips, we got a Frisbee just sitting around camp, Frisbee stuck in a tree. And I thought the best idea to get it out was to throw a rock at the Frisbee, big fist sized rock, threw it at the tree, missed the Frisbee and the tree. And it went through the slider door window in the van and just shattered it. <laughs> and, and Rick like, was like, go get your toothbrush. And like, we just couldn't close the door cause so much shattered glass was in the little rail uh, track. And he's like, get a stick or your toothbrush. I'll buy another toothbrush, but get there. And I want you to like brush out the tens of thousands of little glasses and like pieces in there. And like, I don't care how long it takes. You need to be responsible for your actions. And another time in Hague Glacier, you know, if you're up to the little hut there where the grooming cat's sitting, and if you look out across the trails, there's this snow peak. I mean, it's surrounded by peaks, but like a progression of the glacier going up this mountain. And Ian Malams, Eric Anderson, Mikey Madison, and I is like, because my brother did it the year before. I'm blaming him for this. Like, why don't we go hike up that 1200 feet and then just straight line it and see how fast we can go and drop 1200 feet. Um, did I say thousand, 1200 feet, um, just right back down and just get up to like 70 miles an hour. You go skating or just sliding? Uh, we we kind of like coach skated up there um oh on skis you were going down okay. yeah yeah so the glacier you know it was, it was hard enough it was it's you know it's kind of pocketed which ended up being an issue mm -hmm. surprising but you know it's like freeze thaw rock hard pocketed snow and we we hiked up like eight hundred thousand feet like just overlooking the whole basin of the hay glacier and eric went first uh got up to like i don't know 30 40 crash tumbled Ian went a little farther. He crash tumbled. Mikey went. He ended up like kind of hurting himself, like a back tweak or like some soft tissue rib tears, like nothing like go to the hospital kind of thing, but the kind of pain that he would feel for months or years later. And I came down, might have crashed a couple times, but Rick was standing at the bottom, the trail closest to where we were. And the three other guys kind of did the roundabout way around Rick to get back to the hut and hike back down to the down back to the lodges. But he was standing there and I could see his glare from like a quarter mile away. And I, you know, I take responsibility for what I do. They're not always the best decisions, but I skied up to him and he gave me a, I don't know, 30 minute, 45 minute, talk and like this is what i mean by father figure like this is what i grew up with like saying like read like there are skiers that follow you like you are a fun 
go lucky kind of let's do an adventure and like there's there's your friends and kids like want to do like oh Reed did it let's go do it and that could be okay when it's small and innocent and we're in a parking lot at Lake Creek but we are out in the Canadian wilderness and like the if someone gets hurt they're going to be life flighted we can't just get an ambulance here you are responsible for this I'm putting a hundred percent of the blame on you because I don't care if you came up with that idea or not you were part of this like everyone respects you to some degree and um and just like you know like read take off your glasses look me in the eyes i'm going to tell you what this means in this situation why you are being irresponsible why you need to be a better person why you need to grow up because you can't be have the privilege of coming on these trips and just like all fun and games all the time and like of course we always thought that but he, he would just with the technique or like there's the, the the fun rick and then the down to business where they're telling reed to grow up and like and i needed to hear that and that's those talks i think he had two or three that day because i kept making poor decisions and there were times he just get back to the lodges he take me out give me another 30 minute talk like reed i don't know what you're doing why will he lock it down because you are worth knowing the things i'm about to tell you and like it's powerful stuff and it's it's what kids need to hear. And he was there to say it. And he did say it. And I feel um, like I need to ask you a, a very important question. A lot of people listen to this podcast. In retrospect, that was a very bad idea, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Yes. And you make Whoever's sure that listening to this, do not do that. If you go to Hague Glacier, respect your coaches. Don't go in the backcountry. Like there's crevasses. There's avalanche danger. Like do, do not do that. Like, there's like a crazy idea. It was one of my worst ideas. And whoever's listening to this, don't get in your head like, oh, if I'm on a glacier, I can go ski off and like go find some fun things to ski down. Like, no. If you're thinking about it, talk to your coaches, talk to adults, talk, talk about it. Don't just, don't make rash decisions like that. Like you could do plenty of fun things here and there and get away with it. But there are times and places where you don't do like random on the spot decisions. And that's one of them. So kind of shifting gears, I think the listeners have gotten a, an idea that you're spontaneous and extremely talented. If, if they don't, they'll, they'll, learn, they'll realize that soon enough. One of the things that you used to do, which isn't an option for normal people, is you would ride your unicycle on mountain bike trails, like legitimate mountain bike trails. I can't imagine doing that. For me, it would be a huge achievement just to check the mail, you know, with my unicycle and go back. But um, you actually thought, I believe, that there was a good training effect because of, because you know, going down, you had that um, eccentric, you had to lower yourself down the mountain and going up. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I'd, I'd say just started off like I had a history and I'd still do of like random idea by Reed, let's try it. And like, I was just doing random hobbies like i have these phases like i found i discovered a rubik's cube and like that was my life for like a month and just like got to get it under a minute got a rubik's cube and like unicycles I, I fortunately had a friend that was like let's try unicycling and we at first got a normal unicycle you'd see it like a circus or like you know a, more of a road bike tire and we would just i think the first weekend we probably did eight or nine or ten hours of like get on it go five feet fall off get on it go five feet fall off and Fortunately, he and I were both motivated enough for some reason to like 
we were going to learn how to unicycle and then we learned that balance and you know that could be helpful in any discipline and any activity in life uh just becoming more comfortable with your body and trying to understand why you stay on the unicycle when you do and when we can go forwards then like well we could probably unicycle backwards and if you can do it with two feet you could probably do it with one foot and what if you could take your feet off the pedals on a downhill put your foot on the tire as a brake to keep yourself up which i never successfully pulled that off but like there's you know like any activity there's the easy you can just do it and then there's the next step and the next technique and the fancier thing and like you could just spend your whole life trying to become a professional unicycler and then we discovered mountain unicycles which instead of the like 16 18 inch road bike tire they're 24 inch two inch some are like three inch like imagine the fattest knobbiest downhill mountain bike tire put it on a unicycle and there's the seat and there's a handle on the seat so that when you're like jumping rocks you can pull the unicycle up oh, with you wow. and it's like of course why wouldn't we try that and sun valley as many people are aware is like has thousands of miles of single track and back you know mountain bike opportunities <laughs> and why not go by like unicycle them all and i do like fox creek like outside of lake creek like my probably favorite mountain bike ride so we went and unicycled it and yeah i'd say just in general it was an incredibly useful skill just to become aware of your body i guess but i would also say that the most sore i have ever been which is saying a lot because like i'm the type of person that could be doing squats for like a year straight and like i feel good in squats and i'm hitting my max and i could push the limit to where after a year of squats and feel good i could just do squats one like i'm gonna do it and i'm gonna crush it and and i would do it so hard that i would be sore the next day even though i'm like peak fitness in squats so like i'm always sore but unicycling one motion that humans will never really do is push on the back pedal like the usually biking you push down to go forward when the pedal is coming around but unicycling it's a fixed wheel relative to the pedals and so when you're going downhill you have to push down as the pedal's coming up to slow yourself down and no one ever does that move and we decided to go up uh carbonate mountain above haley yeah. uh, probably 1500 feet 2000 feet a little switchbacky trail going up and it's hard it's like a fixed gear mountain bike going up but the bigger the tire the faster you can go but the harder it is going uphill all fun and games got to top went down and just you know trying to adrenaline junkies going down jumping rocks and like we didn't want to stop and like pushing on the back pedals and i didn't realize it at the time but dropping 2000 feet riding aggressively like almost max single leg squat every single time in when in a situation where your leg is you know anatomically in a weird position you know, it's kind of behind you is it, is it, the muscles are lined up in a way that is not normal. And I came off and that night I was fine, but you know, the next day or two or three, it got progressively worse. And we happened to be just leaving for uh, the Swedish 
junior training camp with Pete Phillips, um, where, you know, we go for a month and hang out with the Swedes and um, ski there. And so I remember trying to walk in the airport a day or two after that. And I probably needed crutches. I probably needed a wheelchair. Like I could not, I couldn't stand up. I had to like use arms to stand up. And I was as close as anyone could be to like hobbling around and not being able to walk because I had destroyed my muscle tissue so much from doing that activity. So great sport. <laughs> I mean, no one does it. It was fun, but I, yeah, I think it was just a really fun thing to do for balance and um, coordination and can make you really sore if you don't plan ahead and realize what you're actually doing. I can only imagine someone from the area getting into mountain biking, you know, proud of themselves, riding a Carbonite or Fox Creek <laughs> or something and, and, you know, getting halfway up, taking a break and thinking, man, I'm, I'm doing great. And then you come whizzing by on a, on a unicycle and just completely shattering their sense of accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I think people don't even realize it's a thing. Like people know oh. unicycling is a thing, but definitely not backcountry unicycling. There is a group that went to Moab when I was in high school. I almost went with them to go, unicycle the slick rock trail in moab and like it's just silly i think that's just kind of my lifestyle like doing things like where everyone's like why are you doing that reed that doesn't make any sense hey that's not a real thing people don't do that well, like you know it's like roller skiing people driving by like why are they doing that yeah, yeah. that was just my life like riding by a unicycle why are you doing that <laughs> why not okay during and after high school you qualified for and competed in two world junior championships. After you graduated from high school, you also, you stayed in the area and trained with the Sun Valley Ski Education Foundation gold team. In 2008, you qualified for and raced a World Cup sprint, finishing 35th. In addition to excelling in ski racing, you were also a hot bike racer, competing in the Tour of Pennsylvania with the California Giant Strawberry Cycling Team. You then attended CU and skied for them. <clears throat> You qualified for World Cups again in 2009 and raced a sprint, finishing 37. Do you have any comments about these years which were healthy and they showed, in my mind, your great promise? They were fantastic. I mean, I fortunately had a family that um, supported, like, a kid that wanted to go travel around the country and ski race, and my brother and I were doing it together, and... Um, I think I, I said I was starting to ski at 10 and when I was doing a J2 or U, U16, I guess is what y'all call it these days. Um, I, I got a friend from Boise that we'd ski in the Intermountain Division, Luke Studebaker, where he was the shit. He was winning everything and in the junior categories and like I would get second, he would get first every single time. And I think that's where that, the drive of like a super, super competitive. Uh, I remember listening to Andy Newell's uh, interview and like, yeah, I'm just not that competitive. <laughs> like, ha, like, that's funny. If I lose like a checkers game, I'm going to be upset for like an hour after that. Like, no, like I'm super, super competitive, you know, to each his own, but having Luke in my junior up and comings, like just crushing me every time. And like, I would 
each year I'd get a little closer. And I'm the first time I beat him was like the biggest thing that ever happened in my life. And might've been in like a, yeah, just a junior race, Intermountain qualifier, nothing special, but like I was probably one of the most stubborn people you'll ever meet. And I just put this thought, like I'm going to unicycle and I'd spend 10 hours a day for three months doing it. And like, I'm going to beat Luke Studebaker and took years. <laughs> like I got him once or twice before I graduated, but, um, but yeah, so the high school had Rick, the Sun Valley team, the resources, the family support. And uh, randomly in high school, I met a friend of a friend who soon became one of my best friends, Scott Crankula, who's growing up in, you know, in my grade in the Valley. And he's like, oh, you're a cross country skier. You should road bike. I'm on a road biking team, like local junior team. And so I was like, okay, <laughs> and got a bike. And I think I already had a road bike at the time, but started biking with Scott and this team. And my lifestyle became, you know, training, skiing year round, like everyone does. And, but with an emphasis on road biking, training and racing, you know, I do all the ski training, but make sure that I would bike enough to be competitive and doing the state championships and you know there's the cat categories of racing we're starting at cat five then you race cat four cat three two is like you're one of the faster races racers in like the region or the western u.s and like cat one is like semi-pro and then there's pro and i kind of worked my way up when i was like 13 14 15 up through those categories and my year off between high school and college, I had raced well enough that a friend in town or kind of my coach's acquaintance, uh, Funston was his name. He was a director or a friend of a U23 slash pro California racing team. They were kind of considered the pipeline for US pro, you know, development, I guess. And like they're they're doing a u23 pro semi-pro tour of pennsylvania and uh they need an extra they don't have enough and so that was my first and only professional in the sense that everything was paid all meals were paid trips were paid like uh and like full tour de france experience it was a seven day stage race across pennsylvania and it was just like living life to the fullest. I think on the first day, there was a prologue. It was like two miles just to get everyone lined up that same evening, the first day, a crit 90 minute criterium, you know, just around like three city blocks. And these are international racers coming to Pennsylvania. Like it was the top U23 racers in the world and averaging like 32 miles an hour in a train of 200 riders with about an inch or two of space around you hitting corners. And the second to last lap, I had these fancy new bike racing wheels that had carbon spokes. Um, and it was so close to a biker on the second to last lap coming into the finishing stretch, my spoke clipped his derailleur, that spoke shattered. And then it created this pattern where all the spokes shattered and I, my fork went into the ground 30 miles an hour over the handlebars face first into the asphalt 
face slowed me down as I ground down the left side of my body. And, but that was my, I wasn't going to stop and I didn't finish the race, but they was like, okay, we'll give you a two minute penalty. You can keep racing. And like, I, like, I think I got some stitches and I still have a scar. <laughs> like my beard doesn't really grow right here. Got to get the beard comb over to cover it. But, uh, and I raced the next seven days, cut, like I was a mummy, like covered in bandages. And it was a full adventure and experience. And I was, I think, eight, 19, just about ready to go to college. And that was just one of the multiple stories of the ski racing and the world juniors. And it, if I were to look back and like have the perfect childhood upbringing and like, I'd want to have all these adventures and be able to ski race and bike race and unicycle in the mountains, like just live an adventurous lifestyle and try hard and um, hopefully be competitive that it was the perfect progression um, up to that point. And then I, I went to see you because I, I was between like Dartmouth, like West Coast, East Coast, Montana, um, but CU has one of the best uh, collegiate cycling teams in the country. And at that time in my life, I wasn't sure, I wasn't 100% committed on skiing, but like biking, I was doing well enough in biking that like it was that crossroads and like, I can go to CU and ski and have the potential to bike and just keep doing that. I made it about a month into college, realized the support and quality of NCAA ski teams and the bike team is more of like a club, like let's hang out occasionally and bike. And I decided immediately that I was going full-time skiing. Um, I still biked plenty, but you know, like anyone does for training, but um, yeah, that's kind of the, the process. So let's talk about CU. <clears throat> One thing that's noteworthy about your time at CU is the first two years at CU, you didn't qualify for NCAA, <laughs> for the NCAA championship. And for those that aren't familiar, generally teams can bring three athletes into the belays. And so you were ranked fourth your freshman year in the Western, the RIMSA, it's the Western Collegiate Circuit, but you were also fourth in the team. That's how strong yeah. the team was. And for that reason, you weren't able to go to NCAA belays despite being one of the top four racers in the West. <clears throat> so I had a question about that. Clearly the recruiting effort was successful but what else was it that made the CU Nordic ski team so strong at that time? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very frustrating at the time. Like, I'm the fourth fastest skier collegially in the Western United States, and I don't get to go to NCAAs because Matt Gelso, Vagard Kohlhammer, and Jesper Ostensen are one, two, three. And, like, sure, yeah, they ski faster than me. They go. I don't. I get it. But, like... Yeah, it was a frustrating time, but uh, similar to what Reese was talking about in his interview that like, he wasn't necessarily an early bloomer. Like I was competitive. Like I was in the junior scene. I was like trying to get top fives and stuff. And my first juniors uh, nationals was in uh, New York and I had like a seventh or I think was my best, best results. So like, you know, I wasn't the, the simmies and the match Elsos that were early on on the podium and um i was more of a I, very early on it was obvious that i was more of a sprinter than a distance skier similar to reese and all of my biggest performances early on 
except for one 15k classic in Houghton uh, senior nationals where I snuck in a 11th when I was like 18 or something. Um, most everything was sprinting and collegiately they're all distance races. They're the 10k and the 15k mass start. And so I went in knowing that, you know, I wasn't a distance skier and I was going to collegiate distance skiing, but, uh, yeah, the, there, you know, there's the classic Scandinavians that show up that they get the full ride and they're incredibly fast. And I think that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in my distance skiing career was skiing with Vagard and Jesper and Matt who can just put down ridiculous distance races and training with them day in and day out. And yeah, it was a very successful team. Uh, but I think freshman year, Ian Malums, my roommate and longtime best friend and, uh, and I were one of like two or three Americans on like a 14, 15, 16 men's Nordic team and the rest were Scandinavian. So very competitive. Some of the best skiers in the collegiate US that were picked ended up in CU and I, I spent freshman and sophomore year chasing them and was just a spot off I think both years or maybe two spots off sophomore year but um yeah it was it was an amazing experience training with them and it, I think it helped me develop my my distance skiing yeah for sure well let's talk about your junior um you won your first NCAA race for CU and you qualified for NCAA championship finally a day after finishing 18th out of 29 starters in the first skate race, you stormed back to win the 20K Mass Start Classic race. What can you tell us about that awesome day? <laughs> First of all, it was, well, it's at Stowe, Vermont, so sea level ski racing. And I have a terrible history of racing distance at sea level. I was born a high altitude. I do best at like 6,000 plus feet where it's just a pain cave death march and you just go until you throw up five minutes in and then just maintain that pain for a while <laughs> until you finish and that uh apparently the 18th on the skate to the first place in the 20k broke at the time the ncaa record for biggest comeback in ncaa championships from day one to day two and yeah i showed up as like, okay, sea level distance racing, here we go. Uh, had And I, I had been, I felt like I was in, at that point, some of the best shape of my life where Miles Havlick was just slaughtering the field that year. And he was at Utah and he would win. The next person would be 30 seconds, 45 seconds behind him. And then everybody would just pile in behind him. And that was definitely his breakout year where, um, <clears throat> that year in his next senior year where he was just slaughtering the field and similar to Luke Studebaker when I was 14, 15, like miles was the guy to beat. And granted I hadn't qualified for NCAAs yet. My teammates were the ones to beat if I wanted to make it there. But like um, my first win was in an Aspen, like one of the last qualifiers before nationals. I was getting splits by Bruce and Yana or, see you coaches they're like you're even with miles you're two seconds up on miles you're two seconds down and just like back and forth the whole i think it's a 
10k classic and and then it took an like an hour and a half or two hours after the race for them to figure out the times and i think i got them by a second or two and i was like one of the better races i've ever had so to the ncaa's the 20k like i had a terrible 10k i didn't sleep at all the night before probably got like three four hours of sleep and just like very hard on myself because i was so stubborn and like i'm here for the team i'm here to perform i've been performing i come to nationals and i get 20th out of 29 like what is this i'm i'm better than that i have been better than that <clears throat> and my plan in the 20k was like settle in like distance classic is my thing i'm not a great distance skater but <clears throat> sprinting first distance classic then distance skate as far as performance like just you can do this. You have the performance. And funny thing is Matt Gelso had won the NCAA national championships the year before in the classic race. And my plan was to win the junior year. And so I was like, Matt, what was your training log? Email it to me. I'm going to follow it every single day for the year and <clears throat> match what you did because you won so that I match what you did and I'll win. And that's exactly what happened. It was the weirdest conversation I ever had with Matt. He's like, no, you can do it. Yeah, like, I did it. You can do it next year. And he sends me, he graduated, so he wasn't around. But he sends me his training log. And it had some, like, awkwardly long distance training the weeks before nationals. You know, a lot of people start racing. Their hours go down. But he had this, like, volume block right before we, like, slow and steady. You get the body back up, like, instead of just, like, short, fast intervals in the racing season. And I don't know what it was, but it worked. <laughs> and um, the morning of the 20K, Alishka Haikova, our uh, female fastest skier at the time, who had just won the women's classic mass start. And she was a sprinter, almost like World Cup level sprinter, but went to college. And she comes up to me, it's like, Reed, you have to use these skis. And she's strong enough that she and I, you know, I'm a five, seven, not the biggest guy, but she, we could ski on the similar skis weight wise. And like, you will win if you take these skis I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. And like it, it had, it had dumped two feet of snow the night before and we showed up and it was pouring rain. And then that turned to freezing rain, you know, classic East coast. where just like, everything happens in a 24 hour period. Yeah. And like I had my classic test skis and, you know, four or five different test skis with different variations of wax, like any race. And I tried her skis and they were perfect. Like there's no ski that's ever out there that's perfect, but these were perfect. And my other ones were like, yeah, you know, yeah, I kind of got on those. Like, of course I'm going to race those zeros. And like, it wasn't even fair at that point. Like started the mass start just i was like i'm just gonna sit in the top 10 top 15 you just stay in the lead group just relax and every downhill i'm like pushing people's poles because i'm running up on them and like every uphill just perfect kick and everyone's breathing harder around me it was just one of those days that it all worked out and it was crazy because alishka had just won on those skis and she was right they were the perfect skis and the first like 10 12k i don't think my heart rate went over 140 like it was just like ah, this is nice at one point miles broke off the front and i was just following him just like god this is 
perfect. Just that's that, you know, that a couple times a year you get that kick or that two or three strides where it's just like, boom, boom. And just like this, that was the best five seconds of classic skiing I've ever had. And it was one of those days where it's just like relaxed and just going. And I was with miles, look back, we had a hundred meter gap on the field and like, Oh, okay. Well, this is going well. They eventually pulled us in and Bruce, my coach coming in the last lap, about three K's out. He's like, treat this like a sprint. Like, you know, you're a sprinter. You got this. And it's like, okay, yeah, I don't, I don't win distance races. I don't really know how to do that, <laughs> but I'll, I'll in the front, like people kept fading off. There's some crashes and the field went down to like five or six in the front. Eric Bjornsson, um, a couple Scandinavians, me and uh, maybe Tyler Ranking, I think. Um, and it was that last hill is like a kilometer climb to the stadium and then a straightaway finish. And uh, one of the Norwegian guys from Montana, it's like, get to the bottom of the hill, starts hammering, gets off the front, gets like a 10, 15 foot gap, and then just crashes. Like, just like, uh, and it kind of gets like pulled back in. I was like, really? Was was that? Huh? They must be really tired. And like, I have not worked to this point. It's like, I guess now is a good time. And I just put the hammer down and didn't look back for at least 30 seconds. And when I did, you know, there's 100, 200 foot gap. And like, oh my God, like this, this I, I don't win distance races. This is ridiculous. Oh my God. Oh my God. And, uh, made it up to the stadium and in his defense Eric Bjornsson was closing that gap and maybe if the race had been a little longer he might have won but there's in my biggest super tour win and NCAA national championships sure Eric's one of the best American skiers in the country and and he has earned and achieved and worked hard for everything he has he's done but there's those two races that the I got him by a couple of feet and it was just like, <laughs> I think he told Matt once, he's like, I had Reed in that race. If it was five more feet, I would have got him. And Matt's like, but it wasn't. And you didn't. It was like, it was just great, great field. And it was just a perfect day. Cool. Well, let's talk about that spring. That spring of the same year, 2011, your life changed in an instant. Please uh, tell us what happened. Yeah. So, Came off NCAAs. I followed Matt's plan, which shouldn't have worked. It worked. I won NCAAs. I was doing well, you know, great GPA in college. I, everything was perfect. Like, I felt good. Best shape of my life. Won nationals. Everything I had ever dreamed of up to that point had happened. And I remember driving around in Boulder, you know, in like early May or something, and like thinking like, life can't get any better like I am so happy and everything is perfect like I have the best friends the best team best family and like I don't think life could get any better and then finals junior year were on May 22nd and I took them fortunately and completed my junior year in college because if I had had my traumatic brain injury before that, I don't think I would have graduated college, but took the finals and decided to like, Hey, summer, woo, summer's here. Let's go, let's go rock climb to celebrate the end of the year. And 
I've been climbing all spring. I've climbed most of my life and being in such good shape and having climbed in the spring after nationals, like I was in good climbing shape. And we went out with my ex-girlfriend, Mally Noyes, who I grew up with in Sun Valley. She was visiting Boulder. I think she'd already been done with school. And we went out Boulder Canyon to go climb. And we did three or four sport climbing routes. You know, you got the draws and you clip the bolts that are bolted to the rock. And we're walking back to the car and I saw a traditional climb with, you put cams in, you know, it's not protection that I've been looking at for multiple years. And like, I got the trad rack in the car. I really want to climb this. And it was an 11 D would have been the hardest thin finger diagonal crack I'd ever climbed. And the last thing I remember is tying into the rope and like touching the rock and like starting the climb. And apparently what happened is I put four pieces of protection in is like a 35 foot climb, pretty short. I fell at the crux and the top two pieces ripped out of the rock. I have no memory of this. I have no memory for a week of this at least and fell backwards. I wasn't wearing a helmet because I'd been sport climbing and sports climbing safer. And I, there's this general trend in the community like people don't wear helmets. Um, but I usually always did trad, but this was a last minute decision and I fell 20, 25 feet backwards, I think onto my shoulders, neck, kind of in a backwards position where I slammed my hands into the ground, broke both my wrists, shattered my skull in three places, and I was unconscious for 10 or 15 seconds, started spitting blood, had cerebral spinal fluid coming out of my ear, my left ear, and I don't know if I should have survived that. But um, Mally was incredibly on point in that moment and called for help. There was a nurse climbing nearby. She came. She, Mally was aware enough to hold traction in line and spine, keep, you know. But I was fight or flight at that point. I started like throwing fists and screaming and like, you know, fight or flight type of stuff. And fortunately, of the 3,000 climbs at Boulder Canyon, that one was one of like, 10 that is basically on the road like if this had happened 15 minute hike up that would have been a six hour rescue of like get the rescue team and like all that stuff and i was 20 feet from the road and we got an ambulance someone went down to call a car car called 911 ambulance within 15 minutes ambulance drove me a quarter mile down to a pullout life flight to denver and i was full mental collapse between like screaming and cussing and then nothing for 10 seconds and then jokes and like helicopters I love helicopters and then back to like punching and uh long story short I was in the ICU for two weeks and I slowly came back into consciousness like kind of this dreamy like 10 minutes three days in 20 minutes the next day and to the point where I was kind of becoming aware. So when I became conscious and I remember it, I was aware of where I was and why I was there. Um, and at that time, my first thought was like, I got this, I'm alive. That was crazy, but I, I'm such a crazy kid. I've had so many broken bones over the years. I think I'm currently over like 22 right now. A lot of them fingers and toes in my defense, but I've had enough injuries that like, I'm fine. I'm talking. I'm in a hospital bed, but physically I can stand up and 
scoot my little IV around the hospital, like I'm going to be fine. And I was not aware of what a traumatic brain injury can do to your life. And in the moment, it was just like, I have all summer to recover. I was in the hospital recovering for a month and a half. And at that time, it was, yeah, it was very confusing. It became very apparent very quick. They, they gave me, I lost my smell. Like somehow it came up, like scratch this thing and sniff it. Like nothing, scratch it. And at some point, my olfactory area in the brain got damaged because there was nine bleeding spots, which is like multiple tiers of traumatic brain injury severeness. The most severe is like more than five bleeding spots. I had nine and the biggest bleed was in the back. Well, the front actually where the brain rebounded, bleeding everywhere. And the, the doctor said the only reason I survived is because my skull was so fractured that it could expand because you know, the common death is the brain gets damaged, it swells, it cuts off blood supply and then lights out. And, but my skull was so fractured that the skull could expand to allow for that swelling. So I didn't die in the first half an hour. And I lost my smell and it became very apparent very quick that I had lost a significant part of the English language where I could still talk, have conversations, but like nouns were not a thing for me. Like fork, knife, spoon, I could not think of the names for those objects for a year and a half. Like I would have to change the way I said things like, could you hand me the thing you poke the food with? Like I could talk, I could use English, but I couldn't say, I couldn't come up with, you know, it's on the tip of my tongue at the early on. It wasn't even on the tip of my tongue. I just blank. And if, if I asked you, Ian, what is this called? You say it's a fork. I'm like, Oh yeah, obviously it's a fork. Two minutes later, if you asked me what it was like, I don't know. I can't think of it. And um, so I couldn't talk the way I used to talk. I couldn't say words that, that anyone can say. I, mean, I could say them, but I couldn't think of them. And I couldn't understand people talking at me. Uh, like I could understand the basics of it, but like if you said a joke and like knock, knock, who's there? And like whatever the joke would be. And I'd be like, why, why did you knock on the door? Like, I couldn't grasp a play on language. Uh, like, that's what she said. Like, why did she say that? Like, no, read that, that was a joke. And so it was, the summer was fine because I was laying in bed, recovering, not doing much all summer, but then started my capstone classes, senior year finance, you know, high level finance, finance and spreadsheets and documents and accounting and, you know, some relatively complicated classes, but I couldn't understand what the teacher was saying. And so the resources at CU, they gave me a pen that records what people are saying as I'm writing it. So if you said, you know, like accounting has 36 like rows and columns in a standard spreadsheet and I would write like 36 rows and columns. And then I would listen to the class not get any of it or like 10% of it go home. And if I touch where I wrote on the paper, the pen would start playing that audio of when exactly I was writing that. Wow. So I like touch it and like hear the teacher talking and it's like little dots on the page that the pen recognizes a little camera. And so I would listen to the class, write it as best I could go home and then listen to the class 
three or four more times and like what did he say what did he say it was probably the most helpful invention for people that have a hard time like in my situation that's ever been invented like listen to it again listen to it again listen to it again i could find exactly where they were saying it when they were saying it and as far as reading i couldn't understand much like i would read a page like imagine if you're ever reading a, a book or a novel or whatever and then you start thinking about making dinner while you're reading that page and you're like oh, i have turkey or like whatever stove oven you get to the bottom of that page and you're like oh i have no idea what i just read and you go kind of go back and start every single comprehension sorry so you can read the words but you have no comprehension yeah i could read it and i'd be going through it, but like i'd get down and I'd, i have no idea i would have to read every single page my senior year two three four times before it started to sink in <clears throat> so everything was a little harder classes were a little harder relationships were a little harder because i was awkward and people were like well i don't want to hang out with reed because he just has this blank glaze and people are laughing like he just can't keep up with communication so people kind of became more distant and I made it through that year um, but it was the start of a very very dark period where early on I was positive and like this is gonna be great I'm fine I can't figure out English but I will and like yeah we're gonna do this and like at that time the first couple of years was the high highs where I'd be laughing one minute and then crash mentally and just be like fully losing it fetal position on a couch just bawling for an hour because I dropped an apple before I wanted to cut the like just weird little triggers would happen like I put a shirt on inside out and I would just lose it and just like ball crying just like ugly crying for like hours and it was just like happy sad happy sad and just very confusing time in my life but it took a long many many years to figure out what that happened and why, how I should approach it or if I should approach it, so. Let me ask you a question about the cerebral spinal fluid. Did you have challenges with that outside of the initial injury or was everything so bad that that wasn't a challenge for you? Because that, that can be a major issue for years. Yeah, I think I was very fortunate in that physically, besides my small cracked broken wrists, like physically I was fine. Like I could in theory, two months after the injury, I could have gone for a run. I shouldn't have from a bouncing brain, but like the skull didn't do much. It just healed at some point. I didn't lose enough cerebral spinal fluid out of my left ear for it to have any, no one ever told me that it was an issue. They just said it happened. So I don't you think- you can lie down for example, or look up or do oh. all things and you don't have issues or didn't have issues? Oh, well- Looking up for example? <laughs> Well, yeah, my, my, my spatial aware, like I, I would throw up every single time I got out of bed or in bed for the first two or three months, four months, like something, yeah, my ears, you know, when, if you close your eyes in a car, the car turns right, you know, we can feel that right turn because from my understanding, you know, the inner ear little tubes, they have a little hairs or crystals in there and the fluid when when you move it that they the it moves those little hairs and that gives you the sense of turning those had been damaged and the crystals that had sensed that were kind of broken off and bouncing around in my ear and so i'd move my head and whenever i change my plane of my head i would get nauseous and initially i would just throw up immediately and just like in bed get up 
throw up, get back in bed, throw up. And okay. that eventually. So a question, would that happen if you got out of a chair? No, as long as I was here, I kept this head on the same plane and stood straight up. No, hmm. it was only if, even if I did that or leaned forward or I'm, tilted sideways. I'm going to tell you something that no one knows but my wife and one other person, but I've had a cerebral spinal fluid leak for years. And I have the same symptoms. I know, I know what that feels like. It's very, very uncomfortable. And, and it brings a bunch of other issues as well. Makes sleeping very difficult. And when I get out of bed at night to go to the bathroom, I, you know, I'll follow, I'll just pass out. I'll fall over from the pain and the, it's like you're doing an extreme roller coaster up and down and you completely lose your balance in any yeah. it's a crazy thing. But um, it sounds like you suffered from that for a while afterwards until it stopped leaking. It, it, it got better. Um, where after three or four months, I would just be nauseous when I got up or almost throw up. And then like the nauseous nausea would get better. And after six or seven months of this, it was getting better, but it was still bad. And I had the most voodoo situation in my life ever happened where a doctor fixed that in less than 10 seconds immediately. And I got up and it was gone and I've never had it since. And feel like based on your description it, it might be a slightly different where I think I had leaking cerebral spinal fluid for a short period and then that stopped leaking and then my issue was the damaged inner tubes of the ear um, and this doctor looked at me and it was like a PT neuro PT uh, like in Sun Valley and I tilted my head got nauseous and she's like oh I know exactly what that is and apparently the crystals, they're like bouncing around. And every time they bounce the ear, your head doesn't know what's going on. And she's like, we need to get those crystals to tilt your head the right way to get them settled at the bottom. Then you keep your head level for six hours. You're never, and then they'll dissolve at the bottom or, you know, I'm going to be describing this scientifically correctly, but she literally like, okay, tilt your head back to the side, 45 degrees, roll over. And she was basically following the path of the tubes in my ear to get the crystals to settle at the bottom and like, and sit upright. And she's like, okay, you're good. I'm like, I don't believe you. She's like, we'll tilt your head. Like we'll have to do it again, but test it. And like tilted my head. And after six, seven months, first time I didn't become nauseous and almost throw up. And we did it again to get them back at the bottom. And then I put a neck brace on for six hours and it never happened again. So, was, so, so you know Ben Lustgarten? Yeah. He had a Lusty. similar, yeah, he had a similar issue, and he came up with techniques with with Doctor in Sun Valley as well to to combat that. But he had a lot of the same issues. Obviously, not the brain damage and the traumatic injury and everything, but but the specifically the ears and the crystal. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's like having a broken arm. Some a doctor shakes your arm and says your arm's not broken anymore. Like. That'd be nice. So we, we've kind of talked about your short-term struggles and then going back to see you. I guess we can talk about the, some of the longer-term stuff in a bit. So um, for short-term, then you returned, oh, in December 2016. Why was it that you returned to get that brain shock therapy? 
Yeah, it was, it was, at first I ignored that I had any issues for my senior year in college, my one year of attempting professional ski racing. And like, I was back, I was, it became apparent very quick that I was deeply, deeply depressed, like very, very dark place in my life. But like, I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to get up in the morning. I was hungry, but I didn't want to eat because life is meaningless. And like, how am I going to go for a three hour run if I don't want to eat a banana? Like, uh, but I have a history of being very, very stubborn and trying to live up to the expectations of others. And everyone expected me to perform because I had in the past and I was an up and coming skier and everyone expected me to, or maybe they didn't, you know, I, I don't know. I, I could be putting words in people's mouths. So we were talking about December, 2016, you had long since retired at that point, right? Yeah. You, you, you went and got brain shock therapy I guess to help you with depression. Yeah, I, yeah, we could focus on that. Basically, for a couple of years, I didn't think anything was wrong. I stopped skiing, and then for three or four years after that, I'd go to psychologist number one, number two, number three, psychiatrists. Probably been to 30, 40 doctors in the last couple of years, and it was this progression of like trying antidepressants. Probably been through 50 antidepressants none of them did anything. It was a question of like, are you chemically depressed or are you depressed on life? Because you were, life was perfect. You lost everything right. and you're just sat on that. And so after 50 medications didn't do anything and therapies didn't do anything, the next step, an extremer step was ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, where I was in Salt Lake at the time, speed skating, but they have a very world renowned medical facility there, especially for brains and really high, high level stuff. And they had an ECT clinic there where I would go in, they'd put me under anesthesia and put electrodes on my skull and they would force a seizure. And for like, 20, 30 seconds, my whole body, like full on seizure, full grand mal body seizure, just like medically induced. And with the idea that there are damaged pathways in my brain. And by doing that, it could kind of reset some of those paths or create new paths and like change the, the status quo of my brain. And like, if my brain is bad, changing it in any way with no long-term in theory, issues would be good and I, I could move and talk and walk that during that month um but i have no memory of that month like maybe five seconds here ten seconds there i'd do it uh seizure on monday day off on tuesday seizure on wednesday day off on thursday and Kay fink um my now fiance was basically keeping me alive at that point like she would wheel me out in the wheelchair after my seizure and like take my limp body and like kind of try and push me in the car I'd sleep for like 36 hours she'd like keep me fed and watered and like basically be like treating an infant like a six-month-old infant for a month and a half straight and the more it happened 
the less I remember to the point where that entire month is gone and I have no memory. And after that sequence of treatments was over, you had to once again relearn understanding and speaking English? Yeah, it wasn't as severe this time. And like before, I could still talk, but I had made it to a point. I started playing guitar in those years and like memorizing poems. Like I memorized the Raven because the more I could sing, I could, the more I could be involved in written English or someone else's English. If I could sing a song, I didn't have to try and remember fork or knife or spoon in my conversation. I just had to remember these two, three paragraphs and sing them. And it, I think was a huge improvement and rehabilitation for my brain to use English. Cause I was saying words I wouldn't normally say, and I could do it. I could sing the song 50 times in a row and it would be words that I don't always say. And it, the repetition was good. So up to that point, I think my English was good enough that no one really noticed. Like I could fake it till I made it. And a lot of this recovery history for four, five, six years was faking it, whether it was being happy or pretending I knew English. But after that ECT, it was very apparent that whatever, I have no idea what happened or how it happened, but I lost a lot of English words after that. And it was hard being five years out, trying to make it better, and then having three steps back and trying to remember English again and trying to be an adult, like a young adult, college educated and like trying to, you can't really tell people that. And that was another big history. Like, I don't want to be like, hi, I'm Reed. I have depression and I have a hard time with English. I might say goofy things or not understand you. Be like, it's not a conversation you'd have with many people. So I just kind of hit it and tried to pretend to be old, happy Reed, which didn't always work, but. So let's, I'd like to continue talking about the challenges with the, with your traumatic brain injury and fallout, just some different aspects of it before going back to the timeline of your kind of your life. Yeah. Your initial injury was about 10 years ago. And then the, your second setback from the treatment was about five years ago. What are today, what are some of your symptoms and things that you're able to, uh, what are some of your symptoms? And have you found anything that minimizes your symptoms? Um, I'd say, I think the biggest noticeable thing was my personality change. Like I used to be a class clown. I used to just blah, 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 blah. Read, 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 thoughts, 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 da, 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 da. Like read, shut up, stop talking. Like I was just that kid that was goofy and loud. And Rick, he's like, for the first year you skied on the team, you didn't say any words. You just made sounds just like, rah, 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 like this weird 10 year old, like you were crazy. And after the head injury, it makes sense that not being comfortable with the English language that we should all be pros at by the time we're 24, it's debilitating. And I think, I think the personality change was just lack of confidence and with the underlying long-term depression and not being confident to talk to someone and just being slower. And like, I became very quiet and reserved more of an introvert and it was hard because I, ever since then I've been comparing myself to the old Reed and that's like 
psychology 101 like don't compare yourself to who you used to be you got to become comfortable with the new read and i'm still working on that and like um but another symptom long term is that like they my doctor it's all like he described it as like a the analogy would be like your brain is a battery you're like your energy level is a battery and most people go to sleep and it charges most all the way up and it's a steady decrease and every night you sleep it comes back to a point where you know it's repeatable and consistent and predictable and your brain battery when you sleep it might be at five percent and instead of a normal person going up to 90 100 percent yours goes up to like 45 or 50 and that's why after like 1 or 2 p.m things you become more depressed and thing life looks worse and you might have some motivation in the morning but you don't as much at all at like 6 p.m and so i need to sleep more i'm noticeably worse off if i get less than like seven or eight hours of sleep um but trying to be a productive hardworking, up-and-coming young adult like i get up at 6 5 30 to 6 every morning i'm in bed at 10 10 30 and like have no minute to stop and so it's balancing this line between holding on to my mental stability or trying to do everything live a life and just like hope it works out which a lot of people do and hope they can make it and it does work for me it's a very fine line between full collapse and like stability and and all this stuff so so in addition to sensitivity whether you sleep enough or not what about something like caffeine or alcohol or types of food or any of those types of things? Do they have an, a positive or negative effect? Yeah, it's interesting. I think the best way I could describe this depression is that, and I think Rick was there again when I needed to hear it, that like, like when I was skiing professionally, I was like, I think I won the Bozeman sprint that got me to the World Cups fall 2012. And that night in the hotel, I was like, Rick, I, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like, I can barely live. Like, how am I supposed to be a top-end athlete that's at the cutting edge of performance? Like, I can't do this. I'm not happy. I don't know what ma – nothing makes me happy. And he's like, well, Reed, you have to understand that, like, you are an adrenaline junkie. You live life to the highest highs and lowest lows. And, like, you can't – you're not a person that just gets up, sips coffee, walks around a park, and that's, that's the big thing they did. They're like, the park walk, like – you push the limits and your spectrum is so far beyond most people that like you can't expect to try and win junior nationals or try and get to a world cup and and hit these highest things and get the highest highs in life without getting the lowest lows like the highest highs come with the lowest lows and that's what makes the wins better is the times that you were injured and you came back from and i think my life was zero being sad and you know de depressed and crying like a normal person like the dog dies or you know you're sad for whatever reason and that'd be my zero and a hundred is i won ncaa's and just like oh my god mind-blowing life can't get any better than this and after the head injury it became apparent that i didn't feel much anymore of anything i didn't definitely didn't feel happiness it was just the state of which i was depressed and it was a good day if i was 40 on that scale of one to a hundred instead of 20. And I would, my 
new spectrum went from zero to a hundred, the best way I could describe it would be 45 to 55 or like 40 to 60. And, and like my new highs weren't even highs compared compared to what I used to be. Like I would climb a route or something just like, woo, rock climbing. I did it. Now I climb that same route and just like, woo, I did. So like, that's better than not doing it, I guess. And, and lows would be low. So the spectrum dropped. And so caffeine has never really affected me, but alcohol definitely made it worse where I had drink and emotions would collapse and I'd go down back to zero for a while. So I've had, I've had my share of setbacks. Um, yours is obviously epic. Different. <laughs> um, but there's a, usually a sort of a period where you hope for a near complete recovery, like you alluded to. And you know you stay positive and all this and that. And then if it doesn't happen, there's kind of a mourning period where you might feel sorry for yourself and you're bitterly disappointed. Um, you have this this strong sense of loss. And then eventually there has to be for a person to have some kind of recovery or health, there has to be a new acceptance of the new normal, where you can actually say to yourself and others, "I'm doing great," and mean it. With a brain injury, I'm sure. It's more complicated because it's your actual brain that's injured. So it affects your ability to reason and rationalize. But would you please describe your journey in dealing with this emotionally, which I'm still, I'm sure is still going on. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky because <clears throat> for the first, you know, year and a half after the injury, <clears throat> um, I assumed I'd get better. And I assumed I was the same person because not many people experience becoming a new person because of brain damage. And like, sure, you break your arm, like you're the same person when your arm gets better. But I knew I was going to continue my dreams, even though I was depressed and didn't want to ski and didn't want to do anything. Like I knew objectively that's the old read would want that. And people expected me to perform or <clears throat> at least I put in my head that people expected me to. And up until, I mean, the hardest four months of my life was after my senior year, when I started, went back to Sun Valley, trading with the gold team. And my parents were separated. So my mom wasn't in the family house. My dad lives up in the yurt, basically year round. My brother wasn't around that much or he was working enough that I never really saw him. So I was, I moved back into my family home that I grew up in, in an empty house, doing something that I didn't want to do on the pure thought that I had to do it because people expected me to. And I would just sit there on an empty dining table in an empty house, hating everything about life, hating me because I didn't understand me at the time. And I would just cry while I'd eat dinner and go to bed and cry myself to sleep. Wake up at 5 a.m., go for a two and a half hour roller ski, go work at the Perch, my part-time job that year, the Elephant's Perch, the outdoor clothing, ski, retail store. And I would just, it was the loneliest time of my life because everyone saw that I graduated college, I did well, I was performing physically, uh, but I, I, you can't connect with 
at least I thought so. And it's, it's very hard to connect with people over depression because their first response is like, oh, honey, everyone's been depressed. I was depressed when I got sick and didn't go on a vacation or something. And my first thought is like, F you, because you have no idea of what right. this is. Like, you can't compare it. You can try to, but everyone's like, it's going to be okay. Like, you don't know that. Like, everyone's been depressed. Like, this is different. And I was just spent six months training myself. I still don't know how I did this to get the motivation when the motivation wasn't there to train myself into the best shape of my life and just cry myself to sleep and hate everything about life and be feel and be very realistically alone because I didn't know I needed to reach out to people or it was just was very sad. So up to that world cup, my in Quebec city, uh, that was probably the lowest day of my life in, in the world cup. And up to that point was the, I think I'm going to get better. And then that was the collapse after I crashed in the world cup in Quebec. So we'll, we'll talk about the, the timeline after this, but I still want to continue to explore this. You've been on antidepressants since your, your accident. Have you been able to like now today, this, this year, this month, have you been able to embrace your new normal? Can you, can you say, yeah, I had a good day today kind of thing? Are your, are your highs getting higher? Are you, are, have you been able to kind of shed yourself of the sense of loss that I'm sure you've had for many years? I think so. I don't think it's perfect. I, my biggest come to Jesus moment that was soul crushing was five or six years in when I was river guiding. I was on the river. I had too much alcohol. I wandered off into the woods, started crying. Just one of my random emotional collapses. And I was sitting there on this rocky cliff in the 200 miles in the Frank church wilderness in the middle of nowhere. And it occurred to me that night that it had been a rough five years, just like roller coaster. And it occurred to me that night that I could spend the rest of my life trying to get better and it was the first time that i realized that it's not going to be this recovery thing and like i could like i didn't at that point i didn't think i was going to make it to 30 and um <clears throat> yeah can you repeat that question the, the yeah point? so have you been able to kind of shed that sense of loss and today yeah. are you able to have good days and you're are yeah your so so at each year, the first two or three years is just a crazy show. I can't even describe if it was good or bad because it was a false reality. And every year after 2013, 2014 has been better than the last. I think I the best thing I ever did was stop speed skating, stop competing because you know I tried to come back and ski and I almost completely lost it and had like suicidal thoughts because I was trying to force the unstable read into this performance environment. And, and then I had a lot happen, but then I went back and tried to have a comeback in speed skating because I love, I've always loved speed skating and I wanted to try it. And it's like, I have one more chance to see, to try and achieve my dreams of international performance and 
speed skating is fascinating. And because I'm a sprinter, the shortest races are 30 seconds. I think I'm a raw sprinter. I don't think I'm a three and a half minute cross country sprinter. I think I'm a road bike racing hundred meter dash sprinter. And I think that's like speed skating is a perfect combination of like, I can blow myself out in 30 seconds. And I think I have a chance to be competitive and I want to try that, but that lifestyle, I was forcing so hard to be, to keep the read that used to be, you know, the, the high school read, the try hard, big dreams, go hard, highs and lows, whatever, but like you're living big. And, and I was still trying to live up to everyone's expectations that may or may not exist, but that's, that's how I motivate myself was like, I want to be inspirational for people. I want to be able to achieve things so that people so that I can live up to their expectations. That's just what it comes down to. And I, I would have emotional collapses weekly for six, seven years for no reason. It's just like completely unstable mentally. And the second I stopped speed skating, moved to Denver, <clears throat> became, started building a tiny home and changed my lifestyle was, it's been significantly better since then. We're like, yeah, that zero to 100 sad, happy spectrum it might be 40 to 60 now, but after 10 years, that 60 is the new hundred and that 40 is the new zero. And it might compared to 15 years ago might be a 55 is not a good day. It's like average. Now the 55 is like one of the best things that's happened and it's becoming a thing of the past. Each year is better because that hitting that 60 does feel better than hitting that 40 and that, and I think spent enough time with that smaller spectrum that the new read can, is becoming more comfortable with those higher highs and the lower lows, even though it's a smaller scale, it's becoming the new normal. So yes, I think um, there are days that more days in the last couple of years are I've been sincerely happy or sincerely looking forward to things. And like, it's not what it used to be, but I think Kay, my fiance is, has been a major foundation for me in that she's probably one of the goofiest, happiest people I've ever met where like, she'll see a meme of cats and just like, that's just the cutest thing ever. And, like her smile is sincere and her laugh is sincere. And like, she's, I mean, one of the most productive, hardworking people ever, but like, she is so happy in the moment and just like giggling away and like trying to having that in my lifestyle. And my psychologist is like, fake it if you have to do what she does, like see her laugh and see her smile and match that. And at some point you won't be faking it anymore. Like you're going to, and having her as that example of happy and sad and normal and like having that support is, has been, I don't know if I'd be here without her basically. So I'd like to go back to your timeline and then revisit this topic again, and then go back to your timeline. So Despite all the suffering and aftermath of the brain injury, your body actually healed quite well, basically a complete recovery, your body. And you returned to ski racing and, and, and training and amazingly won a super tour sprint in West Yellowstone in late November. Um, that was a crazy, crazy day, which is hard for you to kind of um, wrap your mind around. Literally, I guess at this point, <laughs> you want to tell a lot us of things that? were hard to wrap my mind around. Exactly. You want to tell us about that Super Tour win? Yeah, fun fact. So that was my senior year is the West Yellowstone beginning of the season. And uh, 
Alishka Haikova, my college teammate, who I'd won NCAAs on spring 2011, sprinted before me, came up to me like skate sprint. It was a point to point. I think it you know finishes on that vertical wall up at the top of the end of deja vu, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, you leave the stadium, point to point, vertical wall, skate sprint finish. And she came up to me like, these skis are amazing. You should race on these skis. <laughs> and as of right now, I have a 100% success rate of winning on Alishka skis. I've never lost a race on Alishka skis, which is for like, maybe I should take her skis or I don't know if my well, skis are not yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, it, I was able to start training enough that I was fit. I was still coming off at that point, the best season of my life, given a month or two break or three, but like I was still in good shape and young and recovered quickly. And I sprinted my heart out and and that, that was a prologue, basically. There was no, there were no rounds, I believe. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if it officially counts as like a super tour well, win, but absolutely. But it was a, <laughs> it was a fist point. Um, U.S. Heat team needed to get fist points on people, especially sprint points, and also our sprinters at the time had a hard time qualifying for the rounds. Of you know, so so the emphasis was purely on qualifying, and so that's yeah. why it went with that format. And it was successful, obviously. Yeah, so they might have had two place. prologues that day, or there's yeah, like exactly. a classic prologue in the morning yeah. and a sprint in the evening. Yeah. And um, I'd always looked up, like most skiers, to like Andy Newell, Torin Coos, you know, the the Mikey Sonat when he was, uh, you know, Garrett Cuzzy when they were yeah. winning and qualifying for big time stuff. And and my goal was obviously to do as well as I can, try and podium. And but Torin, and you know, his level at that time even though I was like, you know, old enough to perform, like he was that world cup tier. And like, I was always, if I got within 15 places of Torin, like it was a good day. Like Torin wins the prologue. I get 12th, like, that's good. Like, and you know, I get closer and closer, but that day it worked out and I saved a little bit for that last hill and just blackout effort up that hill, just jump spread all the way. And uh, I think Torin got second that day and the first time I think I beat him and <laughs> first time I won a super tour was five or six months after a debilitating traumatic brain injury which still makes no sense but I'll take it <laughs> and but the biggest problem with that is that solidified the fact in my head that I was okay right everyone just saw me do that like he's obviously fine like people coming up i remember doing like an interview with reese after that and he's like i'm glad so glad to see you back like it was some crazy stuff like we were worried about you but it's great to see you back and everyone said that great to see you back therefore reed is back therefore reed is fine and that was a very dangerous place to be because i pushed it so far for so long but amazing day the rest of the season wasn't wasn't that great but so that's something i wanted to explore with you so the rest of that winter didn't go very well ski-wise due to a lack of fitness, et cetera. Um, you know, missed a lot of training, of course. And from the mental issues you were suffering from, you did graduate from CU with a double degree in finance and real estate, which is obviously a tremendous accomplishment given your circumstances. The next year you returned to Sun Valley and trained with the gold team with the goal of qualifying for the Olympics in 2014. You were training and got in amazing shape despite uh, facing severe depression still from the brain injury. You again won an early season super tour sprint and qualified for the World Cups. 
you crashed in both of the sprint events at, at the World Cup that you raced in. You say uh, the issue was not at all physical as you were dealing with major mental health issues. Um, and I wanted to talk with you first about how confusing it must have been to be at the World Cup on track, following your lifelong dream, but not to be invested at all in it, despite knowing how important it should have been to you. That's the first thing I wanted to ask you about, because it must have been incredibly surreal to work your whole life for this goal and then not even care because of severe depression while you were on your way. You know, that- It, you, it was you, so, it, so it pressure. Secret, right? It was like this dirty secret that you couldn't talk to anyone about because it would have made him want to puke, you know, for, from disgust yeah. that, that you, you worked your whole life to be there. And when you were there, you didn't actually want to be there and have anything to do with it. And how, yeah. how can you, how can you discuss, discuss that with anybody? It's horrible. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it comes out like I could try and I did talk to some people, you know, the closest people in my life knew that I was struggling, but like in the best way to sum it up is that, yes, I decided to go for it in skiing and I had the big dreams and, and at that point I'd qualified for the Quebec city, you know, in city sprints and the Canmore sprints and like won the first sprint of the year and like on track to, to continue to achieve my goals. And the best way to sum it up is I wanted to want to ski. I wanted to want to perform. I desperately wanted right. to want to race and be there. And like, I remember I used to, and like, I like Dakota Black Horse was my, my roommate in Quebec. And it's, it, you know, I, I was, I was quiet. I didn't talk much and like, I would still read and I you know, joke about things, but like <laughs> what I wanted to do was lose it in the hotel room and give him a hug, get a hug and just cry on his shoulder and tell him that I wasn't okay. And that everyone thought I was, but I wasn't. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't know if I wanted to live and like just really dark stuff. And, you know, that's not what people do. You know, it's like, Hey, Dakota, like, if you're out there, Dakota, you're listening. Love you, buddy. And yeah, you've always been a great person to follow and push toward and train with. But yeah, at that point, like I would go to bed the night before the sprint. And my only thoughts were like, I hope I crash in the warm up. Maybe I'll like break a pole and like it'll go in my ribs and like break a rib and I'll be bleeding out. And like, and then I won't have to race. That was the mentality that I had that entire year. Like, qualify for the heats like woo qualify for the heats maybe i'll crash in the quarter so i don't have to do the rest of this and like it was just this terrible like soul crushing feeling like knowing that i should want to do it i achieved everything to get there but not actually wanting to do anything and before that sprint i actually did crash roller skiing because it's roller skiing around the city to warm up i crashed my i'm bleeding out and there's like my small spectrum just like whoa i crashed before world cup like what else is going to go wrong and it's just like everything was bad everything was negative and like crashing is obviously pretty bad and i'm just bleeding out all over the place and i just like put on my glove over the blood and like go grab my snow skis and go to the start and just like what else is going to happen and i crash in the sprint and just like it was this huge disconnect of people see read from a distance and 
he's doing what everyone else is doing. He's training and racing and you can talk with him and he he's like, can hold a conversation like normal people. But in inside, it was just a tornado, an explosion of just like confusion, depression, not knowing who I was, not knowing who I wanted to be, not knowing if I ever would want anything again. And knowing that I was, this is where it started. We're like, I'm probably going to give up on skiing right as I am getting to the crest of where I want to be. And I might spend the rest of my life regretting the decision if I quit in the next couple of weeks or months. And like, it was just the hardest decision of my life. Like, do I fake it and be way more depressed for four more years to push a goal where I might end my life in the process? Or do I give up on everything I've ever wanted to try and help read first and stabilize mentally and then reassess? So your mental and emotional slide continued as you approached post-World Cup, as you approached U.S. Nationals with the best fitness of your life, but decided that your mental state was such that it made no sense to continue pursuing elite ski racing. You made the decision to stop and then you got, quote unquote, the questions. Again, you looked super fit and healthy, but you were not, which was difficult for people to grasp. This must've been very difficult to deal with because these well-meaning people were your friends and support group and their questions created a negative feedback situation where your answers and having to say these words of explanation over and over dragged you down again and again. And again, it's, it's difficult because you look so healthy and so fit, so at the top of your game, but you were a total wreck. Can you, can you talk about how frustrating that must have been, that situation you were in? It, yeah, it's hard to put into words. And like, I think the only way for everyone in my life, like competitors and friends and coaches and family and skiers to know what was going on is if like, <clears throat> like, hey, Sylvan, let me, you want to come to my room for a bit, like hotel room, like sit your side and have this tear jerking story and tell you about my struggles in life for two hours and let you know where I'm at. And I think I would have to do that with every single person for them to even get an idea of like how hard it was for me. And like, it, it's just this difficult situation where like people, head injuries are a very hard thing to understand or connect or feel empathy for because it's very confusing. Every head injury is different. And like everyone's been depressed to some degree in their life and some are chemical and injuries, some are, you know, relationships or dog dying kind of thing. And, and it's just so frustrating knowing I was where I was at, knowing I was about to give up and not t talking to anyone because I can't pull Sylvan and Dakota and, you know, all my peers and like aside and talk to them for two hours. I mean, I could, but unrealistically, I'm not going to cry on everyone's shoulder for two hours to try and get them to understand me, and I just couldn't handle it anymore and I just had to step away let me ask you did you have I know you have a lot of great friends at that time as well was there anyone at that time who truly understood your situation because it's difficult for you to <clears throat> con 
communicated about it because of what I said, you know, people are, are rooting for you, go read and stuff. They, they don't, was there anyone that you actually knew exactly what you were going through? Matt Gelso and Ian Malams. Ian was my roommate in college. We grew up ski racing together and we still now live 50 minutes apart. We got engaged a month apart. We're probably going to get married at the same time too. Like we've had a very similar life, but those have been my two best of friends for the last, for, since college for 10 years. And, um, and I would tell them a lot of the stuff I've said that like, I'm just in this dark cloud where like life is a gray cloud and I can see people like one of the most frustrating things for years was seeing people being happy because it hurts to see someone do something you think you'll probably never be able to do again. And like, screw you because you don't know how hard it is. Like you just, you laugh and it's all fun and games. And like, that's not fair, which is not for me, fair for me to say, of course, but I, I would tell Matt this and like, I knew like, I'm not happy. I don't like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this year. And like leading up to it, Matt was the one he'd come to, I'd come to practice and he's just like, how you're, how you doing today, Reed? Like, eh, pretty good. And like for months training on the Sun Valley's team, like he, he just, he knew that I was struggling to lead a normal skiers lifestyle. And, and he came, I think he was dropping something off of my house in Sun Valley after the world cups before senior nationals. And they were in Soho in Soldier Hollow and my best distance results have always been at Soldier Hollow and all my best results have been at Soldier Hollow. And I think with my fitness, I had, it's easy to say, to like guess, but like, I think I had a good shot of top fives in most every single race distance or sprinting because the time trials and everything had shown that I was able to compete in all those events. And therefore I was, I should go but Matt was standing in the driveway and he's like, all right, so I'm going to go on Christmas and I'll, I'll see you in Soho. I was like, I don't think I'm going to be in Soho. And he said exactly what he needed to say. Like he basically just said like, okay, I'll see you when I see you there. Like, he didn't ask why. Yeah. So he just, he, he knew it was coming and he wasn't surprised when it happened. And just like, that's okay. You're still my best friend. And let me know if you want to talk or like, I'm here for you. And he's just like, he, he understood. It was very good to know that, you know, he, he probably expected me to ski well and perform, but, he was okay with Reed that didn't ski. And that was pretty groundbreaking at the time. So. Yeah. So, so you retired from ski racing and you having a hard time understandably with the decision and also with basically all of your friends, not knowing any better pressuring you or asking you for explanation or, you know, whatever you escaped the situation by going to Italy and sleeping on a friend's couch for a couple months and just kind of walking around and drinking a lot at night and didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily a step forward, but maybe it was the kind of thing where you hit rock bottom and bounce a little bit. But um, 
that wasn't a good period for you, I think is safe to say. Yeah, I mean, my real life wasn't working, so I avoided real life. Yeah, exactly. I booked a ticket to Europe and disappeared for months because I, I didn't have anything else to do. Didn't have anywhere else to go, and I didn't have any answers. You returned to Idaho, and from this point forward, it seems like despite the setback in 2016 when you had the, the shock therapy treatments, it seems to me that your story takes a profound turn for the better and um, is, is much more positive. Is that a fair thing to say? You've, you've made tremendous progress since that point? Yeah, I think going, realizing that I should start treatment or psychologists, psychiatrists and start trying to be like actively trying to be happier, be better, to try and solve the problems I had instead of ignoring them and trying to continue read. And uh, I was able to have some amazing opportunities, which we'll talk about. Um, and the spectrum is still smaller, but I was able to relax and kind of step back and go to therapy and work on antidepressants and do active lifestyle choices and you know start working toward changing and accepting my life the new read and like so when for me when things get bad and i know i don't have the same situation i've never had the situation you're in but for me when things get bad two things seem to help focusing on simplicity living a simple life and also helping others it kind of helps you forget your own problems you know um, and it seems like this kind of recipe helped you recover to a point as well. You, when you returned to Idaho, Rick Capala reached out to you and asked if you would be interested in guiding the para-athlete Jake Atikoff for the 2013-14 season. You were still in excellent shape and Jake was a very fast skier. The other skiers who could have guided for Jake were still pursuing their own racing dreams. So you were the perfect candidate, assuming you could handle it. Can you first tell us about hating, then getting used to, and then embracing this role as guiding guiding for jake yeah i wouldn't say i hated the idea right away but i was terrified that, that was your but, word from from what you wrote me just so you know I'm fair not... enough yeah no, no, fair enough yeah i think we're reading it back is like i had, it i was terrified of the idea of that because i had just pushed my sanity to the limits trying to make nordic skiing work and here Rick was be like, you want to jump back into Nordic skiing? <laughs> like, no, I don't. Like that was the scariest thing that ever happened to me in my life. Was trying to Nordic ski. Yeah. And which is just ultimately sad because that's who I was. I was a Nordic skier and I loved it. I had loved it. And um, which nowadays I, I have come back to loving it, but um, yeah, the, for a, like, I'll get back to you on that in a month or two. I talk with friends and family, like, I don't know if I should do this. Like I eventually realized it wasn't about me. Like I was a good skier. Jake needed a helping hand and Jake's hilarious. We grew up in Sun Valley together. He was five or six years younger than me, but we had known each other forever. And I decided, you know, like, why not? Like, I don't have to perform. I'm still a good skier and I can, I guess I could travel around the world and ski in amazing places with Jake and, and find a new motivation to help someone else 
and hopefully that would take the focus off of me and be a re rehabilitation in a way. And it was, it was, it was incredible. So in addition to training with and guiding Jake, you also started guiding river rafting trips, which also was a simple or Spartan life filled with concerning yourself for others' well-being all day long. Was living a simple life and focusing on the well-being of others a healthy thing for you? Absolutely. I, I think that is a double-edged sword, but that was probably one of the best decisions I've ever made in the last 10 years, where it's a Stanley, Idaho, population like 37. And there's the Middle Fork and Maine Salmon Rivers where they're week long trips, six days, five nights. And I show up at the warehouse in Stanley, sleep in the back of my truck and there's questionable cell service, but we would do a trip for six days. Those guests would leave. We drive seven hours back, clean the coolers, reset the boats, reset the equipment. We have like half a day off maybe, and then pack everything up, get back on, meet the new guests, do it again. And for four straight months, I would probably have like seven days of work, upwards of like 16, 18 hours a day to just keep my mind off of my past, which I didn't want to think about my past. And when you work 18 hours a day and you have to do everything in the moment all the time to keep people alive and happy on their vacation on a river trip, was exactly what I needed. And it eventually became, there were difficulties in that my battery I was talking about, like it's hard running myself into the ground 24 hours a day, basically getting up at 5 a.m. to make coffee for 30 people in a like snowstorm. But, and there, there were some negatives that came from it where I got very exhausted and some slightly more depressed at times, but the first couple of years when I didn't have many responsibilities, it was perfect. Like seven days in the Frank Church wilderness, the biggest wilderness area in the US, I couldn't check my phone if I wanted to. Like the only reason I have my phone is for like a flashlight or to take a picture. And I, I didn't, I couldn't go on Instagram and see Mikey and Matt and, you know, all of our skiers doing well. And, you know, that, that, jealousy of like oh like i couldn't i was lost in the wilderness for four summers for four years and i was sleeping out of the stars the only thing i had to worry about was like are the guests happy and healthy is our food plan good is our river plan good is our equipment good and narrowing down life to a basic you're on a river you float you eat you camp you float you eat and like it was, it was just incredibly relaxing. And it's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to stop river guiding because it's just, the life is too good. You don't spend any money because you're working all the time. You make good money, but you live on your Paco pad and sleeping bag in a beautifully like wilderness area. So, so you, you guided, as you pointed out for four years, do you have any stories from these adventures you'd like to relate? Like one story? <laughs> um yeah they're, they're just uh so the the middle fork river is one of it's very technical it's more of a creek where like the grand canyon can be like hundred thousand cubic feet per second and just huge power and lots of water and 
the middle fork can peak at like 6,000. I mean, it can go higher, but like, it's probably around like three or 4,000 cubic feet per second. It's like, the joke is if you fall out, you don't have to worry about swimming because you could just stand up. It's like six inches, but it's very technical, lots of rocks. And you have to be a very good oarsman to navigate and not get stuck. And it, based on its history, people used to build these scows, these like 20, 30 foot, like basically semi-truck of a raft with massive like telephone pole, basically sized oars, one man in the front and one in the back and they would try and you wouldn't give yourself forward or back momentum. You just try and point it the right way. And it would kind of follow the current. And a lot of them would build these boats, go down the rivers and hand off goods to the miners and, you know, the mostly miners that were along the river. And then they would sell the lumber at the bottom, build another one and do it again. Or a lot of them would take the rafts and build them into cabins they disassemble their raft and build cabins and we have a new version of that they're they're called uh uh drift boats no blanking on the name they're giant oar boats that have a front and back oar and and if the if one of those boats flipped it'd be about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars because all the guests bags and everything are on there it's not rigged to flip because it's just a semi-truck you get to camp and probably some of the craziest situations are when the gear boat goes ahead of everyone. You get out early, you get to camp, you set up 20 tents, the kitchen, the fire, the everything. You create the lifestyle so that when the guests show up, everything's ready basically. And there were times where it's, it's, it can be a dangerous raft because you're by yourself. It's a, I don't know, multi-ton, like thousands and thousands of pounds just in your little hands scooting down the river and our boat, the oars were made from a actual semi-truck drive shaft because you need a long pole that doesn't flex and they're probably 20 feet long. And there was one time where I was going down the river by myself, beautiful day, loving life, got my fresh beats going and hit a technical, well, a rapid pistol creek and uh, my front, blade hit a rock I, I started going sideways and i'm standing up you actually stand on the floor of this raft you're not sitting like normal smaller or boats you're standing it's called the dance floor throwing these oars around and the oar hit the rock as i sweep back it hit the rock the wrong way and i lost the oar it hit me in the back and launched me like into the fence there's a physical fence holding the duffel bags in the raft hit the fence and just like wrecked me it's like a two or three hundred pound steel shaft with ten thousand pounds of leverage behind it I stood up and i'd lost both oars the back oar hit another rock hit me in the chest and launched me 20 feet over the raft out in the water and just like wham wham it's just like swimming trying to chase this $150,000 boat down the river and um, that was just a crazy thing that happened but in general it was uh, you know just great people most of the time and great river trips people just they, they come out and see the stars you know you're 200 miles from the wilderness and like you look up and the Milky Way is blinding because there are no lights 
hundreds of miles from where you currently are. It's just people are like, they've never seen stars like that. And being able to be part of that and meet new people and create relationships and everything was just fun. I mean, it was stressful when you're trying to keep people alive and there are like down trees and people in a kayak that have never kayaked before, like an inflatable and close calls where like bad things happen and people are, can be lost out there. And so it, it can be stressful, but in general, it just one day at a time and we're going to go 15 miles a day. We're going to do a side hike and check out some pictographs and relax, which is great. Some parts of the Salmon River have uh, grizzlies. Did you run into many grizzlies when you're out there? Um, no, surprisingly, most of them, I think, are slightly farther north. I think on the main salmon, it'd be more likely, yeah. but there are fewer, like, on the middle fork, I guess, a lot of black bears. You see, like, little black bears cruising around, otters, um, bald eagles, um, osprey, elk, moose but not many grizzlies. So we didn't have to do like uh, bear boxes or hang bags or anything. Cool. Well, that's, that's great. Um, like I said, you did that for four years and you trained in race supporting Jake throughout the 2013-14 season, including in Sochi. The experience turned out to be just what you had been yearning for. Um, you wanna say anything about Sochi or your experiences with Jake? Yeah, it was, that was just a great year. We, <laughs> I did my first river guiding season after my attempt at professional skiing. Um, had fun doing that. And then the plan was for Jake and I, I think in October, to go fly to Sweden and to get me back in shape. I was still in good shape, but I've been rafting all summer and get my legs back under me and just Jake and Reed travel to Sweden and train a bunch and ski with some of the like high school skiers there. And after that, it took me a while to get back into shape. I think our first race in, we did a time trial at the end of Sweden and he dropped me. It was a 10 K skate <laughs> uphill climb. And I said, my best, my, my weakest discipline is distance skating. That's his best. And he dropped me. And like, I was, he's like, okay, hey, pick it up faster, faster. And like a lot of full blind skiers, you have the speaker on your belt, microphone, and, and a lot of them just make sounds just like, up, up 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 and they follow that sound when i was getting fully visually impaired skiers i would try and describe it as much as possible like you have a compression in three seconds three two one compression because that helps <laughs> like corner in three seconds three two one corner more more right more right more right and um jake he's only blind in one eye and he can see like 15 percent in the other so you know he has a smartphone he can do everything by himself he can read it's got to zoom it in a little stuff and Great guy, one of the most hilarious guys I've ever met. Just a great sense of humor, but uh, he he could ski very fast because he could see more so than other people. And um, yeah, he dropped me. I didn't know if I was gonna be able to guide him after that. I was like, I don't know if I can keep up with him if he's dropping me. I eventually found my form in Yellowstone, and and we would uh, World Cups in Canmore. Uh, he got a couple top top tens and training camp in Italy or no, Austria got to meet the whole Paralympic team like Tatiana McFadden and everyone and, and be part of that and being part of a family where there's less arrogance and 
and everyone really appreciates the opportunity to compete and to live a full life and and just be able to support them in any way I could and they're just some of the most down to earth like happy hardworking people I've ever met it was just a great experience and went to Sochi it was like 70 degrees when we were racing and um opening ceremony was great the ski race was great Jake got got three top tens like seventh eighth and ninth or something like that and um it was just an incredible experience and I kind of got to have fun with Jake he did well and I got that like this is a pretty incredible experience and I kind of got to live my dream I guess vicariously through Jake because the dream was Sochi the Olympics opening ceremony like live the experience and I did get to live that experience questionably in a better way because I didn't have to stress about my own performance and like lose sleep overnight like yeah like I had to help Jake do the best I could be the best guy I could we could have fun and hang out and experience it together and I would get that full experience in a way I never thought was possible or that I would be part of but it happened I went so she was amazing and I think it was a big kind of check off the like you're doing all right or like things turn out all right and like this is an incredible experience kind of thing so cool well Reed from here uh, this for me is a lot of fun this part because <laughs> when you retire from trying to be a professional athlete doors open to epic adventures that you wouldn't be able to do you shouldn't be able to do anyway um, when you're pursuing the highest level of elite sport and during that 2013-14 winter you started thinking about making some kind of comeback in your athletic career and you decided maybe speed skating would be the thing you want to do and also, and you were riding a bike a lot, but you want to do something in Europe after Sochi and going, bringing your bike over the place wouldn't, wasn't very practical, much, much easier would have been rollerblades. So you came up with an adventure, which I followed at the time you, you had a blog and I was writing back and forth with you on your blog when you were doing it. Um, but your idea was to give all your gear to your US ski team friends and then fly to Frankfurt, Germany, and then in an airport bathroom, change your clothes and head out on rollerblades from the airport, massive airport in Frankfurt am Main in Germany. And your plan was to rollerblade from Frankfurt airport to Siena, Italy, which is about 750 miles. You had no money, very little money, and um, you were doing the simple thing. So you packed a hundred power bars taken from the Olympic village in Sochi a backpack with solar panels to power your phone for navigation as well as for your blog, three pair of knee pads to protect yourself and also to use as an emergency brake in case the brakes on the roller blades broke, which they did early on, so it was a good move, a sleeping bag and bivy sack. For those that don't know what a bivy sack is, you want to describe it uh, quickly? It's basically a tent that's in the shape of a sleeping bag. So not really pulls, it packs up small, fully waterproof it's a one person tent that's as small as a tent could be so you kind of get in the sleeping bag pull over the sack which is a cocoon shaped tent zip it up go to sleep it's like a sleeping bag shaped tent with a little bit of room around the head is that yeah some have like small little poles but a lot but you're basically sleeping in a little cocoon yeah um extra clothes and a water bottle 
you covered about 60 miles a day skating until sunset when you would look for a cow field, forest, or vineyard where you could sleep. You were eating about 10, I guess, power bars a day and buying water as needed. So it was very cheap. <laughs> your trip. Yeah, it was a budget trip. <laughs> yeah. You had to take your skates off and run when you hit dirt roads and ended up running about 30 miles during that, like, was it about eight days? Yeah, it ended up being eight. I was planning at six originally, took longer. There was more snow than expected in the mountains and yeah, about eight days. When you hit the Alps, you found that passes were still closed due to snowpack and you had to circumvent them with public transit. After it was all done, you ended up rollerblading about 600 miles. As I said, I remember following your blog and communicating with you during this amazing time. You had some pretty big crashes as well from hitting potholes, which, you know, when you think about it, you got a person who's recovering from a traumatic brain injury <laughs> and he's, he's got himself all protected up. Obviously you're wearing a helmet, but you're, you're flying through city streets and country streets in the dark sometimes and not, you hit a blind pothole. corners. Yeah. yeah. And you go flying and, you know, it's, it's not a recipe for health necessarily, but it's one heck of an epic adventure and something that captured, captivated my imagination. And I just love it. Um, I guess I'll talk about your arrival in Siena and then ask you to talk about it. When you arrived in Siena, you did it in spectacular fashion, rollerblading the last 24 hours straight pretty much, except for taking naps here and there when the road got especially busy. The road between Florence and Siena, you covered from midnight to 8 a.m. to avoid traffic. And this was in a strong downpour. So that was your yeah. last leg. <clears throat> Can you please talk about this epic adventure? Because I love the fact you did this, especially <laughs> given your circumstances and your history. It's so cathartic for me and such a, for me, this symbolizes, just to me anyway, I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but this symbolizes your personality and your love of adventure. And I'm so, I was so glad to see that it didn't, uh, your, 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 um, your hardships didn't conquer you, but you went back to the no fear of life, <laughs> Reed Pletcher that I knew and loved and admired. Yeah. Um. It was a pretty cool couple of years because I was finished the ski career. Like you mentioned, I finally had the opportunity to try random things that didn't include focusing on training and getting the training log every single day and like river guiding and, you know, doing different things in life. And yeah, I was on a low, low amount of money at the end of the season, but I think with the river guiding in the summer doing like the uh ski coaching or guiding in the winter like there were months like two or three months in the shoulder season here and there where where i had the opportunity to go do a trip and like save money all all summer doing the river guiding plan a trip for the fall and like have some extra money left over make a little money doing side jobs and do a trip in the spring so for like three or four years I had the opportunity to come up with crazy ideas and do them. And that trip was, I um, just decided that like, I don't need to go straight back to the U S like I haven't, I don't have a job lined up or like, you know, I have to meet Matt at some point for our, we have a spring adventure, but there's like a month or two here where I could do whatever I want. And I used to have that friend in Italy, a high school friend who was working at the, school abroad where he 
went to, he eventually went back to work there as an administrator. And so I could just crash on his couch anytime for free, which was nice. And it's like, I just need to get to him. But I'd also don't want to spend six or seven or eight hundred dollars like flying there or bus or whatever. And like, and I do believe that, you know, the best way to experience countries or the world or nature is slow down and bike it or run it or in this case inline or rollerblade it because they were easy to pack in a duffel and I was starting at this point to consider speed skating like I think biking or speed skating inline rollerblading 800 miles would be good pre-training or get my headset for trying that sport and I literally went in the bathroom in Germany Frankfurt and put on like full downhill mountain bike armor body armor like shoulder like it was just a full long sleeve shirt air quotes and, that, and uh, rollerblades i imagine did you come out of the bathroom wearing your rollerblades um, i walked out of the airport carrying them and i had my tennis shoes and then i went to the bench like the bus parking bench outside the airport sat on the bench put the rollerblades on checked a map decided how to exit appropriately and it just started rollerblading that way and yeah it was it was a crazy idea but it could work potentially it would be a trip of a lifetime and i would get to see like the french german border because it's pretty much the path and then switzerland and italy at like 10 miles an hour at a slow steady pace and like and just i would try and sleep at night where I wouldn't get in trouble, basically. I was just trying to low profile. So I've got some, I got some questions that of maybe kind of rapid fire style. When you were leaving the airport, Frankfurt am Main is probably the busiest airport in Germany. A lot of traffic. Did you second guess yourself? Yeah, there were a couple questions, there were like moments early on, especially the first 20, 30 minutes. And had no idea. I was just like, I wanted to get to a small country road. And the shoulders aren't massive in Europe. And I did a lot of uh, kind of marathon skating where I'd like keep a skate like over the white line and I'd have like six, I tried to avoid traffic by just like inching along with a little marathon touch here and there until I got out away from the bigger streets. So what's one of the worst crashes you took? <laughs> uh, I did run into the back of a car uh on day one because they didn't put their blinker on and they passed me and i was going downhill into the like it's like a four-way stop intersection and and i thought they were going to go straight so i was planning on kind of running up next to them as they accelerated and they turned right into my lane and i couldn't really get to the brakes in time like they're not like heel brakes like normal because these are racing inline rollerblades they don't have like the rubber heel you know protrusion on the back like you either had to crash to stop they're more like roller skis in, in the sense of trying to stop they did have, i had these little pull cords on the side of my legs i could pull the wires that were attached to my feet to slow down but i didn't have time to pull them and i kind of ran into the back and ended up underneath their rear bumper because i tried to fall over as i ran under it and nothing really happened i kind of waved and they left but the worst crash was at midnight skate i didn't check the uh vertical relief of my trip i checked at the crow visual map like 
oh, it's a nice little country road going through vineyards. Like, it'll be great. Apparently, I spent like two or three hours leaving Florence, starting at midnight, climbing up this like switchbacky mountain road. And then it was like ridge running for another hour. And then I got to the downside and I had no idea what was coming. My headlight would only make it, you know, 20, 30 feet. And a question for you before you get to this downhill. Yeah. You had a brake system that failed after about a day. So that the wires didn't work anymore. Is that? Yeah. They're basically you pull the, the cord um, and the cord pinches these plastic like brake pads that right. pinch the wheels. And I had used them so much or used them so aggressively that it melted the plastic pads to the point where they were just useless. So there was almost no friction, almost no braking effect. And then you started, you know, like when a soccer player scores a goal and then slides in the grass, is that how you were using your knee pads? Is that how you were stopping? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, well, you could use one knee. So you could like kind of do like a put one knee down on the ground, kind of holding yourself, you're still sliding on the left leg, you drop your right knee, and then you could put more or less pressure on that knee Whoa. to slow down. If you, But then from there, if you wanted to stop faster, you could put the second knee down. It's a very balancey act where there's potential to <laughs> catch something and fall forward. But like, pretty sure I had full wrist guards, like gloves with built-in wrist guards and everything to plan for this. But your braking system made you much more vulnerable and you had much less control. So, so we're talking about one of your other crashes and you were coming down this mountain road from the vineyard. And that's the situation when you're in where your ability to slow down was your technique was putting a knee down with your knee guards. Yeah. That, that was the, your braking system. You could also do like a common inline braking is sideways skate. You yeah. kind of put your foot back and drag it sideways. That's like a if you're going 40 down a mountain pass. Exactly. There's, there's kind of a breakaway speed right. at that point where, you would have to have a, like ungodly impressive technique to be able to stop at 40, 50 miles an hour on skates that didn't have brakes. So this one, I just, I'm just coming over the rise, dropping into this, for me, a black hole because I could not see anything. I could just see the paint on the roads, the road asphalt 20 feet in front of me. And I get up, you know, 20 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour. And I thought it was going to go straight. It didn't. It was a steep switchback, and I saw it with just enough time to slow down. Um, and up to that point, I'd been putting a knee down, but I was going so fast at this point that I knew if I put a knee down, I was just going to be on my knee as I went 30 miles an hour over the metal you know, guardrail. And so I started to put a knee down, realized it wasn't going to be in time, Fortunately, had my full shoulder uh, body armor. I had my shorts. I was wearing like hockey shorts. Like they weren't actually hockey shorts, but they might've been biking that had built-in pads, you know, on the side of your hips and like everywhere where you need it. And I made the split second decision where the only way to stop was to lay down on the ground in the fetal position and let my armor, body armor, <laughs> friction myself to a stop. And it worked. I, I, I just like, oh no, and just like literally laid down on the side of the, like on the asphalt, sliding sideways, just like in the fetal position and bumped up against the guardrail at a reasonable pace. Stood up, kept going, <laughs> but didn't let myself get up to that speed for the rest of the way down.
So here's another question. What's the strangest place you slept in? Uh, let, me, let me just say, in the Western United States, where you're from, where I live, you can pretty much sleep anywhere and no one cares. You know, you get outside of town, BLM land, whatever, no one really cares. In Europe, it's not like that. They're very paranoid about people camping. You can't camp anywhere except for in campgrounds, et cetera. So I, I was wondering how this worked because if someone sees someone camping, they're going to call the authorities and someone's going to go check it out and so on. So I was wondering, you had to kind of hide while you were- Yeah, camping. basically. Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't think I was doing anything sketchy, but it would look pretty sketchy for anyone else if I <clears throat> like crawl into some tree or something and went to sleep. And the first night, I, it's like a, I don't know if it was a cattle field, but a big green open space. And I would look at things as I'm going, as the sun's coming down, like I only have so much time and I have to backtrack sometimes, like a couple miles sometimes, like that place back there is the only option or else I, I can't just keep going at some point, I have to stop. And I would find the green field where I could get off the road, maybe cross a bridge, get to the green field. And there's some like higher trees or grasses and I would tuck behind them or crawl into tall grass so that the only way I could be seen is if like a guy was on a tractor and came within five feet of me. Um, <clears throat> but the there were times where I'd be like a block or two away from a big urban area. And it was like a walking park. And I would just go off the walking path into the kind of dense brush, but not that dense and I would pile leaves on top of me or like tree branches. And in the 8 a.m., the midnight to 8 a.m. skate, it was pouring so much that I got to like a rest stop type of gas station place, found this massive bush and literally tunneled my way into the bush. And I was too tired to even like put a sleeping bag. I just kind of half pulled the bivy sack over me and slept for a couple hours inside this bush because it was the only place I could find at the time where people couldn't see me <laughs> but oh, it worked sure so um I love epic adventures they make in my mind like my life more rich and make me happy they provide beautiful or at least unique memories how did this epic adventure affect you or even change your life I think it <clears throat> I don't think it really changed it because I went into it being a crazy person. And I think I came out of it still being a crazy person of just like coming up with crazy ideas that not many people would like actually consider like, haha, that'd be funny. Like, but we could actually do it. Like, that's funny. Yeah, right now. I get what you're saying, but is there an element of satisfaction that you <clears throat> did it that has stayed with you ever since? Cause I would definitely have that. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I think it kind of got in my head. One of my river guide friends said he like, I went to Norway once and I spent a month just biking around Scandinavia. Like, well, that's pretty sweet. Like, and I planned the route. I brought the equipment. I did it. It was as crazy as I thought it would be. It was more amazing because it worked. I did have to take bus or train here and there, but I left the airport on rollerblades and I showed up in Siena on rollerblades and I, yeah, whenever I look at the map of Europe and every time I just first thing, I just like look at Frankfurt, look at Siena or like Florence area. It's like, huh, I, I can't believe that actually worked. Like, that's ridiculous. It's just going to be one of those things that I'll 
just remember because yeah it's, it was once in a lifetime thing it's like yeah and it did give me the belief that if that worked other things could work and i'll just keep maintaining this crazy lifestyle as long as i can and keep making adventures actually happen yeah i'm, I'm getting older and I'm, uh, I'm aware of, I only have so many years left in my life that I can truly adventure. You know, later on, my adventures are going to be very simple. <laughs> For all of us, yeah. I believe. <clears throat> but I also anticipate looking back at the adventures I've had and feeling very satisfied <clears throat> that I used my time well in terms of being able to adventure and using my opportunities, as well as living well in other uh, uh, ways. But so... This is what I meant by taking it with you. Like I would, I've had my share of adventures too. And I'm sure that this is something that what you did, I would kind of, you know, I would have a measure of satisfaction that stayed with me about like, I lived, I, I lived my life well. I, 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 I took this opportunity and I'm, I'll be glad the rest of my life that I did it. You know, that kind of a thing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like it's a bucket list kind of thing. And I've been able to, been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to check off a lot of bucket list items in the last five or six years and looking back on it like 2013 till now has been crazy and fun and living life to the fullest so yeah I think it, there's a lot of satisfaction involved in looking back at that absolutely so you returned to Idaho that spring and made plans with Matt Gelso to climb the biggest peaks in Peru. Another um, shoulder season adventure, I guess. You prepared for a few weeks climbing 14,000 footers and sleeping up top for a few days at a time to help with altitude adjustment, as well as training on building ice caves. Then you flew to Lima and took a bus to Oraz, which is the town closest to the Cordillera Blanca which contains some of the highest peaks in the, all of the Andes. You then spent the next five months climbing, uh, next month rather, climbing five peaks culminating with Chopicalqui, which is 20,846 feet of altitude. The last peak you were planning on climbing was Uscaran Sur, which is Peru's highest peak. You made it up to 18,000 feet, but then had to turn back due to bad food, which created severe gastrointestinal problems. All in all, spending 30 days in such splendor and under such tough conditions with Gelso uh, must have been life-changing and epic. My first question is, did you have any mountaineering and high big mountain training before this? Yes, just enough, I would say. Um, <clears throat> uh, in sophomore year in college, Ian Malams, Eric Anderson, my brother and I decided to take spring break to fly to uh, Mexico and climb the highest peak there. I think it was 18,200. Um, that was our it was a very simple beginning to a mountaineering career, if you could call it that. Is that it was just a big volcanic cone, not really glaciated, it's covered in snow, but it was a hike up. You know, it's a very high altitude, but any of us could do it technically because you didn't have to have crevasse training techniques. And that was kind of our introduction. Ian and I through college spent a lot of time up at 
Rocky Mountain National Park and um, climbing alpine-esque wintry routes. And then I think the most helpful thing is that same group, brother Eric, Ian and I decided to climb Rainier, but we showed up for like two week trip. And the first week we did um, <clears throat> classes through, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> um, some guiding programs where we do like three days of crevasse rescue and like spending 10 hours a day out on a glacier, um, dropping people in crevasses or fake crevasses, you know, just like a cornice basically and trying to pull them out manually. And, and so we did spend the time and money and hours to, um, at least the four of us did, Matt was not part of that. But um, I think with backcountry skiing and, you know, av avalanche courses and, and then especially the real hands-on experience on Rainier. And then we finished that second week by climbing Rainier and getting to practice all that technique. Because we, at that time we were actually planning on climbing Rain, um, Denali in Alaska, which, you know, is a two week Everest type approach where multiple weeks, multiple camps, you know, full crevasse glacier danger. And so by leading up, trying to plan for Denali, we actually became very, very, I wouldn't say, you know, not anywhere near expert level, but had a good of amount of experience and classes getting ready for Denali to climb other peaks. Cool. So I've been to 16,000 feet in Ecuador and also 16,000 feet in Peru. I've been to mountain warfare school training with the military and I spent pretty much my whole life in the mountains. <clears throat> However, I've never been at over 20,000 feet and at 16,000 feet, I can say it was definitely hard to breathe, especially climbing with a pack on, a loaded pack. Can you describe what it was like to be at almost 21,000 feet without oxygen? Epic. <laughs> I'd say uh, Matt and I were very fortunate. I think we planned very well for it. Like those 14ers you mentioned, we spent two or three weeks in Boulder, Denver area, a couple days resting in town, and then two or three days of climbing a 14er building an igloo or a tent on top and just sleeping on top and staying high altitude for three or four days and then coming back down, doing it again and again and again. And Matt was still ski racing. He was in incredible shape. I'd fortunately come off guiding with Jake where, you know, I wasn't in elite shape, but I was in very, very good shape still. And then we had a very, what I think was reasonable acclimation plan. You know, Juaraz is, 10,000 feet and we'd take burrows and donkeys when we started I guess the plan was take go up into a valley sleep walk around day hikes for you know three four days not rush it at 14,000 feet like the bottom of these valleys are like 14,000 feet and then <clears throat> first mountain was attempt was a 17,900 foot peak as uh, Urus and then down at camp two or three days rest and then try another peak come down reset so similar thing like two peaks rest in town two peaks rest in town two peaks and i think because of our fitness and our preparation level and our just careful approach like slow and steady kind of thing that like 
we rarely had any headaches. I don't think we had any altitude sickness. Mm, cool. Got fortunate, you know. It, it's it's kind of a roulette game up there, but yeah, twenty thousand feet. Like you step, you take a couple of breaths. You take another step, you take a couple of breaths, and like doing like the Baldy Hill Climb annual race in Sun Valley. You know, that's three thousand two hundred foot hike up a ski mountain. That record's like thirty minutes, and you could plan on moving up pretty fast. But in the Alpine world, you plan about a thousand feet an hour so a two three thousand foot climb be three or four hours and it takes everything takes longer everything's harder to, and it was actually very early season it rained every single day we were there um or snowed at, at, up high but we were kind of plowing through two three four feet of snow at times which made it even slower and it was hard. It kind of like the death march drained feeling, even though you're fresh and just starting and you just maintain that exhaustion with the plan to get to the top, achieve the goal and keep going. But there were very long days where breathing was not the easiest. That's for sure. If I look at your post Sochi adventures, you know, these two, which were one after another, pretty much you're looking at rollerblading, in the dark, in potholes, <laughs> crashing here and there, you know, sleeping and, and you have cars to, to contend with and stuff like that. And then you've got a completely different type of, which a lot of people would be very, you know, scared of and, you know, worried for you. But now you're looking at climbing the, some of the biggest peaks in the entire Andes, isolated with uh, the whole force of mother nature raining down on you or snowing down on you. And, um, high altitude concerns, not having tons of experience. You yeah. know, this is, this is, you're out there. This is a, I mean, the only thing it's you could like, do outside of that would be like, go to the moon or, um, <laughs> or like sleep in a, in a nest of snakes, you know, like, or crocodiles or something. I mean, you know, you, these are very um, diverse and extreme, but, but you were good at it. Adventures. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, we were aware that we were putting ourselves in danger. Any type of high alpine trip like that, there's risks that you can't manage. You don't know if some ice serac is going to fall on you that's been there for 50 years or like, you know, the glaciers are always moving and like you can't plan any of that. But uh, Matt and I were very aware of that. And when we were in Colorado prepping, we would just spend hours and hours a day, like lowering each other off of cornices and after checking the avalanche safety, but like practicing pulling each other up and practicing what if situations. We'd had three climbing ropes, one always in my pack, one always in his pack. We were always connected. If this happened, you cut that rope, you grab this pack. Like if one of us can't move, these are the options. We had the you know the spot locators, the 911, push the button, um, kind of backup plan. Um, so it's not like, you know, we just showed up and yeah, yeah, you're prepared. Um, I get it. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, here's a question we, for you. What luxury item? Was there some kind of luxury item that you had with you and that Matt brought with him that is interesting? Like up on the mountains or in camp kind of thing? Something that you were bringing with you into the mountains where, you know, weight is super, you have to be super careful about what goes into your pack because every pound at that altitude <clears throat> makes a huge difference but you brought something with you because you wanted to have it with you, you know, a true luxury item. 
very few because we were we were very motivated to get to the top yeah. and willing to go without much for a long time uh i did bring on a couple of the like lower camp ones like my guitar but that's a pretty big luxury item but it's yeah. it's not a full-size guitar it's yeah. it's like a backpacker's guitar where it's about the length of guitar but at its widest pot you know spot it's about that wide so it's a more backpacking friendly guitar um we had a book i think that i read in like the first day or two then matt read it again in like a day or two um we did have our phones and we could kind of i don't know play like tetris or something but it was uh we did bring i don't know if this counts but like rock climbing shoes because there's lots of boulders and stuff and if we spent four days in a rainstorm in a tent if it stopped raining for 10 minutes, we could do our little walkabout, find a boulder and try and climb it. So, so not much for extra yeah, okay. accessories. You, you guys pretty much spent outside of gleeful moments climbing and, and looking around, you pretty much spent a month in a tent with Gelso. Oh yeah. How did you <laughs> spend your time? I mean, I mean, for the, you know, you said it was raining or snowing pretty much continuously. That means you're, you're, you're hiding in your tent, getting, you know, uh, self-preservation. How did you spend your time? And did you guys, I know you guys are great friends, but you guys must've gotten near each other's nerves, especially during the gastrointestinal problem period. That must've been a little. Yeah. Awkward. Yeah. Matt was very, I was the one that kind of fell apart there. My stomach, I just started feeling terrible. I think I threw up. We were mid hike out of camp one of on the last highest peak and i just told matt like i was on my knees he came back like how you doing like i don't think i could do this anymore and his credit just like when i told him i wasn't skiing anymore he's just like all right let's go we're going down like it was we were we made it very clear early on that if anything goes wrong we turn around no matter what because like it doesn't matter if like you stub a toe or something like that's going to increase the chances that we die and like if if something goes, if someone doesn't feel like we should climb up that steep slope, if, if my tummy hurts and I want to turn, like, no question, we go down. And it's exactly how it works. So, um, yes, <laughs> it was, I think we had a deck of cards, a uh, lot of card games. Uh, maybe looking back on it, besides the physical book, I think we had some things to read on our phones, you know, just like <clears throat> some, uh, book on tape kind of thing or um, computer, you know. How were you powering books. your phones? Did you have a solar panel or something? I imagine it didn't work too well. In the yeah. Phone. Yeah, we had a little goal zero. I think it might've been the same solar panel I used to rollerblade. Mm -hmm. uh, I just kind of brought it around and it was enough to keep the phone charged. I think we also had like the little pocket sized battery packs. So if we had fully charged battery packs and phones leaving town, that would with the solar panel, we could milk it out for like four or five days. Um, but yeah, it poured just, which was funny because we showed up at the beginning of the dry season because that's when the climbing season starts. <laughs> we got there a couple weeks early and everyone we talked to in town was like, it's never rained this long. Well, I've never seen it rain for this far into the late spring, early summer. And everyone said that it's like, this never happens. And it happened to rain the entire time we were there. 
every peak we went on, we were the only ones. We were the first of the season because no one else was going up there because it was raining and snowing. And the big crowds, like usually those valley floors could be, you know, 30, 40, 50 tents in the middle of the climbing season. We might have saw one or two tents that entire month. Like no one was up there. But he's waiting for their sun to come out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what are they doing? Just waiting for good weather. We did get fortunate on a couple of our summit bids, like wake up at 11 p.m. to start our alpine ascent. And it had not been like, I think two or three of our summit attempts actually didn't rain that night while we were going. So we were fortunate there. But it was a lot of time just shooting the shit, playing cards, reading books. And there was one time <clears throat> I snapped because Matt was being ridiculous. He put his socks out on a bush to dry overnight. And it was in the valley floor. We weren't very, I mean, we were only at 16,000 feet at the valley floor, but we went to sleep. A cow came up and ate one of his socks or just like <laughs> chewed on one of them and swallowed it or like gummed up and cow saliva the other. He gets up and Matt, is very particular and is like his socks are here and this is nice and everything's planned and it's organized and when a cow chews on your socks that's not part of the plan he's like are you effing kidding me god <laughs> damn it a cow he starts like throwing like sticks at the cow and he gets so pissed that he picks up our like duffel well our stuff bag full of like stoves pots pans and just like chucks it across the field and I was not having any of that because we need that stuff to work if we're going to make it to 18,000 feet and cook with pots and pans and stove at, at camp two. And like, Matt, you need to calm down. Stop being a child. And he caught on pretty quick. He's like, oh, okay. But it ain't my sock. It's bullshit. <laughs> so, but besides that, we, we did very well. The being in a, very small tent for a month in a rainstorm. So what kind of, tell me about the sense of satisfaction you got, for example, su uh, summoning Chopi Kalki. It must have been amazing to plan that trip, thought, man, we're crazy, but then actually doing it and achieving it and standing up uh, on a peak over almost 21,000 feet next to your best <laughs> buddy, just, you know, making your dream a reality. It must have been super satisfying. Yeah, in every way. Like uh, Chopakalki was definitely the high point, uh, physically and literally, metaphorically, of the trip. But uh, yeah, twenty thousand eight hundred feet. Um, it had taken the Moraine Camp One, the High Camp at eighteen six on like a shoulder, and then the long ridge approach to the summit and we were trying to write route find there were spots where we weren't sure we were on route, but we had to kind of go around the mountain to get back to the ridge. And the, as we came on to the last fall summit, you could see the peak because we'd started at 11 PM midnight, you know, we'd been going for five, six hours. The sun was just coming up. No other tracks, no people. You just see the Cordillera Blanca in its entirety at almost the top at 20,000, just above 20,000 feet. And Peru's highest peak 
what would have been our last attempt or try at a peak, Hoskaron Sur was a, directly across the valley from us. So you can see um, Hoskaron Norte and Hoskaron Sur, the two highest peaks right across the valley. And like, that's the next plan. And you're coming up, there's the summit has this huge, just ice cube, basically just this Serac that the amazing thing up there is you can't tell where the rock ends, the ice begins. And if you're standing on 50 feet of summit of ice or there's rock somewhere there, but part of the peak was peeling off the side of the mountain. And it was, it was 8,000 feet drop, probably half 4,000 vertical, 4,000 kind of a scree field down to our first camp where we could still see some stuff we left. Um, and we used this delicate step around the peak. Like if that thing shears off the side of the mountain, we want to be on the other side of the mountain. So we planned the route, did the safe, you know, extended the rope, snow anchors, you know, step around the summit, little, little ridge for 15 feet. And you just come out and top out on, it's as good as you would imagine, like besides exhaustion and difficulty in breathing and pretty cold temperature, but like, yeah, it was amazing that we could plan it that far out with, you know, not the most experience in the world, but enough fortitude and some book learning and a couple classes to do it, but to actually get out there and succeed in uh, five, one, two, four of our five attempts. Yeah. So like, well, that went surprisingly well. Well, super. Um, that summer, you continued guiding river rafts. The next winters and summers saw you guiding in the summer and speed skating. You, you ended up doing it. Speed skating, the winners eventually made in the U.S. Speeds, the U.S. Speed Skating National Development Team, which was a great accomplishment in itself. In the meantime, a new adventure unfolded. <laughs> Yet another one. How is it that you got interested in American Ninja Warrior and decided to try to qualify? Um, some of my friends. Yeah, I, I, I've always loved Ninja Warrior. Scott Grankla, my high school friend, Taylor Sandali, we, we'd always love just, you know, we go on a ski trip and just spend the whole time like binge watching American Ninja Warrior and wondering how hard it would actually be. It'd be fun to try it. And I had uh, a friend recommend like, hey, apparently there's American Ninja Warrior qualifiers in Salt Lake next year. You should try it. You're a shifty little kid. I think you'd do well. It's like, huh, yeah, that there's zero chance I'd actually get in, but I'll, I could try it. And turned out it wasn't actually in Salt Lake City. There are five or six locations around the country. During like October, November, December, you put in your online application, which is a six minute video where you have to be super upbeat and pretend like you're someone that cameras and viewers would want to see like, hey, I'm Reed Pletcher. I'm from Idaho. How's it going? And like, <laughs> you know, that kind of, to try and be video friendly. Um, I don't know if I'm achieving that here, but like, you really got to work it and tell them why you're good, a good option to put on the show. And the best is to have a good backstory, like an epic story. So I, of course, went with the crazy head injury, came back, went to Sochi, guiding visually impaired skiers. And I, uh later that next year when i was at the 
American Ninja Warrior event, I met the girl that actually read my resume. She's like, yeah, we got like 15,000 resumes and yours was the first one I read. And I was like, well, that's the craziest story I've ever heard. He's obviously it and like checked me off. Um, it is, you know, it, it, it's a crazy story. And um, they called me in like March or a couple months later. I was like, there's no chance that I'm gonna get in. Random phone call one day, like, congratulations, you qualified for 2016 American Ninja Warrior. Uh, you'll be going to the Oklahoma City qualifier uh, in end of May and good luck or something like it was crazy. And then from there, I realized I needed to get into climbing shape because, you know, it's hanging, grip strength, pull ups. And I think I just started doing 200 pull ups a day. I put a pull up bar in my bedroom every time I walk by it, just like 10. 10, 10, 10, and I started at 100, I think, but I just kept upping it with the underlying terror that I would show up and like not be able to hang longer than like 10 seconds on a bar. Like, this, I don't want to embarrass myself. That was the main goal. Like, I don't want to get out there and fall on the first obstacle. You know, it's like stepping stones across the water. I want to give myself a chance to not be an embarrassment because these people are intense. And I purchased a rope with some like wooden kind of candle shafts or like blocks of wood and everywhere I would go. I take 10 minutes, I go find a tree, throw a rope over a limb and just like hang there until I couldn't or do some pull-ups or just grab limbs of trees and just hang and go from limb to limb as long as I could until I gave out and then maybe break, do a couple sets of that and just if there was a chimney nearby in a house of friends I was staying at, because I think I was visiting Kay in Middlebury and I was staying at her house in Middlebury and there's a chimney, so there's bricks and I would just climb the wall of bricks, do a little crimpy until my hands would give out. And then I'd do it again. And um, a lot of the people fall in the balancing um, course, the balancing obstacle where it's like running on rolling logs or very small things to jump on. So I'd set up two by fours or four by fours were easier. <laughs> there were, I cut a bunch, they were like six inches, eight inches, l- lay them all out on a patio next to a house and then try running across them. And then crash hard, <laughs> do it again and try and just running on them as much as I could to practice not shifting your body weight as you step onto something and got pretty strong. There's actually a surprising amount of American Ninja Warrior gyms. Like anywhere you are in the country, if you Google American Ninja Warrior gym, there's probably one within 30 minutes to an hour drive of you at any time. And you can go and practice the warped wall and practice the salmon ladder where you throw the bar up the rungs and which was exactly what I needed because I'd never touched any of these obstacles. And you could just go to a gym and just like any other gym, like I'll try this and this and this and just as many repetitions as I could until I showed up. Uh, then I went to Oklahoma City where there were, yeah, do you want to? Well, so you traveled to Oklahoma City in 2016 and you participated against 300 competitors in a regional qualifying competition of which only 30 qualified to progress. Then the field was whittled down to 15 on another night of qualifying which you, which you successfully navigated and you qualified to participate in the American Ninja Warrior National Finals 
in Las Vegas, Nevada. So congratulations. That's, that's <laughs> How much time Thanks. did you have between Oklahoma City and Las Vegas? And what did you do to prepare? Probably had a month or two. I'm trying to think, because I think it all happened right before my river guiding season started, like June 1st. So I think it was like March with Oklahoma City, end of May, maybe early June for the finals. I think I had to show up late for river guiding work. <clears throat> um, but I had trained enough to be in shape for the qualifiers. So I was just kind of maintenance training between the qualifiers and the finals. But it was ridiculous when I showed up there. Like, first of all, there's all the behind scenes stuff that you don't normally see. Like they film a crowd cheering for an hour. Like I want everyone to like look like someone fell. Oh no, no. And then they just repeat that for an hour so that they have like B-roll footage where they can take extra clips. And so you're just watching people, a camera person tell a crowd to like, do like this, ah, ah, and then everyone would do it. And then they'd film it again, and then they'd film it again. But the other competitors, the other ninjas were ridiculously strong. Like there are girls there doing like one arm muscle ups. And like, I could barely do like 10 pull ups. And like, I don't have a chance. This is ridiculous. Like these people are so strong. Like they they spend, they train as hard as we do in Nordic skiing for just hanging on ninja warrior obstacles year round they're 10 years in like i don't have a chance like i just wanted a good showing that was basically like i want to get through more than half of the course i want to hit enough obstacles that like yeah that was a good effort and yeah i can so go into detail of the courses well in the in the finals out of the 100 competitors that qualified from all the different qualifying areas only six made it through stage one you were not one of them which obstacle was it that got the best of you in the finals? It was uh, <clears throat> the, the, the the hallway. The, I think it was this jumping spider hallway where you run on a platform, jump on a trampoline into a hallway, and you have to stick it. You got to hands and feet, stop your momentum, and then you kind of shimmy yourself down the hallway so where did you fall most people on that fall when they enter like the actual jumping spiders where it goes from like a wall to the entrance to the to the yeah, kind of curves in. Yeah. is that where you fell or did you fall once you entered it some people fall later but that's less less common did you fall yeah no when, once when once you you're in like i had super sticky shoes and there were <laughs> the stickiness that legal <laughs> ninja warrior shoes could allow and um, so once you're in, like, you're pretty secure, as long as you keep the counter pressure, yeah. like you can maintain it. But I, I don't, that was one of the obstacles that I hadn't practiced that much because I didn't think I was going to make it that far. Like there's no chance I'm going to national, there's a, the finals in Vegas and there's no chance I'm going to make it to that obstacle. Like there are 50 other obstacles before I get to that one they kind of repeat the courses you know that like that's on like the back end of the first course and like i tried it a couple times like well that's tricky like i could stick it maybe half the time six out of ten the keys you got to go really far like, you can't go too high so you're gonna become short you gotta go really fast really far and just that stick it has to be perfect with a really fast jump and 
I did it a couple times. We're like, yeah, that's not worth my time practicing. And I made it to it. And that at that stage in the finals, it's a timed course. Whereas in the qualifiers in Oklahoma City, I could do an obstacle, drop to the platform, and then just stand there for like a minute or two and try and reset, let the hands shake out. At some point, they'd be like, you have to go now. And then you have five seconds to respond or else you're disqualified. But you could milk it out. You could try and rest. Um, and everyone did. They just cut that out of the actual final footage. But the finals, the year before, it had been like two minutes and 10 seconds to complete an almost identical course. And an awkward amount of, like too many people finished that. That year it was like 20 of the 100 instead of smaller. So they made it harder. And it was like a minute and 40 seconds where 100 of the best ninja warriors in the country plus me just like this is crazy uh showed up and they're like you basically had to run the course like there was you, you finish an obstacle you hit the ground running and if you pause like maybe one or two seconds once or else you're not going to get you have to hit every single thing perfectly and if you don't you're just not going to hit it in time even if you finish the course and you're done so I think if I had time to finish the last, I think the obstacle right before it was the log roll where you bear yeah. hug the log, just like, Wah! and then actually this was a vertical one where you're going down a, basically a zip line on a log and then it whips out and you have to let go to hopefully fly through the air at exactly the right velocity to land on a floaty mat in the water. Got lucky with that one, but the second I got off it, there's the hallway. I don't have time to think about it. I'm still running. I didn't run fast enough. And like, I'm in the water before I knew it. Like, would have been nice if I paused for a second, but it's just so, you have to go so fast and it's so intense. And the announcers are screaming. And it's also two in the morning. You have to compete at two in the morning because they like it dark and the lights, you know, and all the scenes. So you don't start Ninja Warrior until midnight. Cool. Well, that's that's another awesome adventure and experience that you had, which is completely different from the other ones we've talked about. When was it that you went to Portugal with Kay and did the volcano and uh, the Azores, the volcano adventure? I think that was spring 2016. Uh, where, Colorado. <clears throat> yeah, I, I was I had this one of my bucket list items was told Kay, like the perf the most amazing thing I could imagine as far as like night sky is if you find a, a cone or a volcano in the ocean that's with no other islands, you could get to the top of it and you could stand up like there's the a pet peeve is that I've never been able to look straight up into the sky and not see something per peripherally. Oh, that, that's like, why you needed the volcano. Okay. Yeah, so you got you got the trees and like the mountains and like, you know, it's not a thing most people are concerned about, but like, well, what if you could see everything? What if you could see 360 degrees of horizon? It would be the biggest night sky, the most stars a human could physically see while standing on the face of the planet. And it would be incredible. And I just, jokingly mentioned that one day she secretly got on an email of like 
Oh, and I pointed out, I, I think I zoomed into a random Google Maps and like, oh, look, there's some land in the middle of the Atlantic. Turned out it was the Azores, which is the highest peak in Portugal, but not in Portugal, but they're part of the yeah. islands. They're off of Portugal, but it is in the middle of the Atlantic and there's the volcanoes like that looks like it would work. Yeah, the highest peak there. Yeah, we could, that would be perfect. She went on a, a airline ticket website that gives you notifications when cheap tickets come. And then like a year after I said that, she called me, was like, hey, so do you wanna go to the Azores? Because I just booked us, I had like 10 seconds to make a decision. I have super cheap tickets. It was like $350 from New York City to the Azores round trip. And like, uh, I just booked him. I got like 10 minutes to make a decision before I can cancel. And you got to make this like, uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess let's go. And it turned out to be an amazing trip. We flew over there, rented a scooter, scooted around, slept a night or two on top of the volcano. And it was, it was 360 degree views, horizon to horizon. You look up and there is nothing. It wasn't a volcano you can drive up. You had to hike up, right? Yeah. You could drive like halfway up. Oh, which cool. I was being the like ex-athlete lazy read like yeah we could drive to the tourist parking lot at I think it's 8,000 foot peak off of sea level so it's 8,000 vertical but you can drive to like 5,000 feet it's like yeah of course we're gonna drive to the parking lot and hike up it occurred to me in my head that like we could start from the water on principle of matter but I'm not gonna mention that and as we're driving to the parking lot Okay, just like, you know what? We could park at the ocean and hike to the top. It was like, no, 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 no. I, I was hoping you wouldn't say that. But of course, we had to do it. So we parked at the water and spent, spent the first like 10 hours hiking up a driven road or like a paved road. Didn't even get to the parking lot for like a day and a half. But yeah, it was. thousand vertical feet's a lot, man. Yeah, I was gonna make it three. She wanted to make it eight. She's like, no, awesome. no, I'm being lazy. Read. We don't have to. Okay, fine. <laughs> okay, well that that sounds like it was an awesome uh, adventure and experience, and it was cool that you were able to share it with Kay. In 2018, the two of you moved to Colorado. You built a tiny home from an eight by 24 foot cargo trailer, which you lived in, which which that's where you are right now. Eventually, you bought a house and a small lot. You moved your tiny home to the lot and lived in it while you rented the house out to pay for your mortgage and utilities. Through the U Team USA job pipeline, you got a great job with Inver In Invenergy. Energy as a developer in large scale wind and solar farms. After a couple of years, you felt like you were wasting away in your cubicle and decided to switch careers. Knowing you, I'm not surprised. Um, <laughs> now you are working in what I think you said, I'm not sure you would use the word dream job, but like you found your calling, I think maybe you said something like that. Yeah, I think it's just exactly what I want to be doing right now. And it's hands-on custom building, electrical, plumbing, custom woodwork, building vans. So you're, you're working with for Titan Vans, which is a custom van build company. People drop off their nice vans, oftentimes, for example, Mercedes Sprinters, and you trick them out as adventure vehicles. I was curious, what are some of the most common requests that people have? What are they looking for? Um, I mean, like the, our basic build is our classic build at $35,000 and on top of the van that they've already purchased. And it's, you know, like a removable bed or a slide out bed platform, full electric system, 
so like solar panels, electric lights, uh, galley, so sink, stove, you know, like the basic amenities in like an RV. If you rented one of those, like drive across America, like box RVs, but it's a custom whatever they want. And a common upgrade would be a full steel standing shower space inside there. And there's a couple different size vans. The, the biggest one is basically a reasonably sized bus. It's like a massive 170 extended Sprinter, Mercedes Sprinter. And the one we're doing right now has two projectors with projector screens that come down, uh, oven, a microwave, fridge, stove, full water system, outdoor shower, indoor shower, some have flushable toilets, TVs, uh, anything. Like there, there are people that show up with their vans already built out and they want to add $26,000 of accessories, like the bumpers and the winches and like, okay, if you're pay, I'll put it on. But yeah, it's, oh. it's pretty fun. Just doing some hands-on physical labor. It's always satisfying. So you're still living in your tiny house, I guess the way you put it there, and still running out the house that you and Kate bought to pay for your expenses and for yep. the mortgage and for the land that you're living on. Um, you, where you live is, is it 37 miles from where you work or is 37 the round trip commute? Point to point, it's 37. So if you were to bike to and back from work, it'd be 74 miles? Yep. Wow. So you've been bike commuting uh, the 37 miles to and then 37 miles from work, including in the winter, um, most days? Yeah, in a perfect world, you know, we did build this tiny house to try and, you know, live more, pay less. We did have to buy a real house because we couldn't find a place to like rent out a parking spot for our tiny home. So we had to buy a big house on a half eight, well, normal size house on a half acre lot that we've never lived in just so we could live in this tiny house. So we have little expenses trying to decrease our, you know, footprint, all that, you know, hippie granola crunch and stuff of save the planet. And we're doing a pretty good job of living simple and, you know, saving money for the, our next adventure. Um, and in doing that, we, we picked this location because it's a 20 minute bike ride to Kay's work. And it used to be a 20 minute bike ride the other direction for my work until I started with the van company. And that went from a five mile commute to 37. So for most of last year, I just kind of drove most all of it, but I was going a little stir crazy there, spending like $50 a week in gas doing 70 miles a day. Like, well, I could bike it, but we do Monday to Thursday, 10 hour days, which makes it a little harder to bike commute because if it's nine to five, you know, there's a bigger window on each end to bike or train or do whatever you want to do. But if I was going to bike, I'd have to be up at five o'clock. We have to be on the bike by 525, 5:30. And in, in defense of that crazy mileage, like I did, I biked it once on a normal bike. It took two and a half hours, standard road bike, bit of a headwind. I think best case scenario is like 210 on a normal bike, which is unreasonable to do a 75 mile commute four hours a day on an already 10 hour day. So I 
pull the trigger on an e-bike um and i can do the e-bike gets me 37 miles point to point in an hour 34 on average um but i still have the heart rate on and my average heart rate is still 139 130 like 130s and like if i try hard up a hill like it's not like i'm just like e-scootering to work like yeah yeah I, I, I do it because I want to stay fit and, you know, I want to be able to bike a lot. And I do have some, some goals to, I want to bike some longer, like ultra marathon bike races, just get back into bike racing, have some things to look forward to summer to summer. And I'll need to bike a bit more if I'm going to do that. But yeah. for now, a couple times a week, back and forth works pretty well. Well, it sounds like you've, um, to me anyway, got an awesome life with living with someone you love you're living in a manner that you you want to live which i really respect and admire and you've got a job that you love um i was kind of trying not to put words in your mouth before but i mean it seems like things are going really well and it seems to me you're you're pretty darn happy is that just yeah like, uh, you know yeah you're taking med meds still and um, and you've, you know, you've, uh, had a quite a history, but you're still adventuring and, um, squeezing juice, even more juice out of life there. And, um, things are good, huh? For the most part. Yeah. I think considering the situation and knowing how the last decade has been and how head injuries can go and in a downward spiral, like, I think I'm about as good a place as I could be. Like there's always room to like hope for better and but like i'm here i'm talking we did all those adventures that we just talked about and i've been able to come back and live life and enjoy it all and um my english is back and everything's back and i enjoy the small things i have two crazy cats and a girl i love and so yeah life is a little simpler these days with a more nine to five-esque lifestyle but things are good yeah things are definitely looking up Reed, it's difficult to imagine that you're only 32 years old uh, when considering all that you have done and experienced. I mean, this has been a long podcast. I really hope that you were able to look back at your life with satisfaction and also to see your current situation as positive. You are such an inspirational person. It's, I was looking forward to doing this for a long time. I absolutely love your lack of fear of life and your clear interest in having meaningful, rich experiences that will stay with you for the rest of your life. I love how you have chosen to live and feel a kindred, kindred spirit with you as I also try to embrace a simple life while looking for new adventures. I truly wish you the best and thank you for sharing your story with me and the American Ski Public today. I will be in your corner rooting for you. Please keep in touch and let me know if I can ever do anything for you. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ian. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out and <clears throat> thanks for starting these podcasts to begin with. And I've loved every minute of it and it's great to get back in touch with everyone and get back in touch with you, especially. And yeah, kind of just talk about the good old days and what's to come. So thanks again for everything you've done. And it's great to, great to see you again. Yeah, of course. Uh, same thing. And I hope to keep in touch with you. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do that.